BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. Well, we're bringing in the big guns now. I guess both of them figuratively. You know, for, first, there's uh, the sweatshirt hoodie with the no sleeves that uh, one Anthony Slater is is wearing right now. But even better metaphor would be the big guns to uh, bring on one of the NBA's best beat writers to talk, Golden State Warriors. Looking good, looking tan, just got back from Mexico. How's it going? I was told there would be no video on this podcast, but... Well, uh, there is no video. There's just me describing the Slater guns in all their glory. I mean, it's only, like enhanced by the hood on the sweatshirt it's deep off season you can take a couple trips you know to tropical locations you can go to the gym on a more consistent basis you know this should be (laughs) this should be the time of the year where i'm feeling best because you know midwinter after covering uh, two east coast road trips not as good yeah that's true that that would not is not an appropriate outfit for detroit in in february what's your uh before we get started here is orlando like good enough now that they got the number one pick to not be your default you know bullshit game in february descriptor team or do you are we gonna have a new team now or is it still gonna be orlando it's orlando until the jazz trade everybody <laughs> then maybe it can be Utah. Although, you know, covering the West Coast, you usually have to pick an Eastern Conference team, right? It's more like outpost. You don't I think see so, them as yeah. much. So I think Orlando still holds it. It just feels like the right team to, I guess, tag. I, I think it's Indiana this year. Yeah. Probably. Like, like just a, 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 because it's cold there. So, like, Orlando, at least it's warm. Like, you probably look forward to. Well, you're always to going to Miami right after, which is always nice. Or before. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get started here. And I, I guess teams like this that we're just so familiar with that are just coming off the finals. It's really, it's tough to kind of come up with something to talk about, particularly for the upcoming regular season. So I'll leave it a little, a little bit more open to you of just what you think some of the big themes are for this upcoming Warriors season. I think it is about um, the next stage uh, of this, you know, two era ambitious experiment that obviously stage one which was you know adding all the rookies but still trying to win a title you know win now develop now as as i kind of coined it uh before last season like it worked they won now right the win now part has been checked um but the develop now part i think takes a bigger uh you know steps into a bigger stage in in year two where there's going to be more jonathan kaminga there's going to be more james wiseman there's going to be more moses moody uh you know they're not blocked as much rotationally I think there might be a little bit more 
pressure at times organizationally to to speed up the process and they should be more ready you know those you know i'm Kaminga moody in year two wiseman kind of in year two maybe even in year half but technically in year three <laughs> uh, you know at least nearing you know yeah. a, a very interesting contract stage which we which we can get to a bit later but um those guys playing a bigger role and now doing it on a team that not only is like kind of trying to win now but like knows like look like the window is still open the title window is still open so i just think the clashing of the eras within the franchise is will be even elevated from last season well the hope is that there's no clash right the hope is that these guys are gonna be able to come in wiseman moody Kamingo. we already know that pool can help but it, he's gonna be a very interesting guy to discuss here in, in a moment as well but the hope is that there isn't gonna be a clash like they're gonna come in they'll help in the regular season and eh, maybe they'll have their roles reduced a little bit in the playoffs depending upon the matchup or, or how the weakness is whether they can improve those or not but uh, I, this is what you do as a, a team like this you drafted someone number seven overall Otto porter was a good contributor like i think it makes sense to not not, you know, Otto Porter wanted to go to Toronto. He got a one plus one at basically the tax pyramid level. Like, no, I don't think it makes sense for Golden State when you just drafted someone number seven the previous year who had some moments of contributing to re-sign Otto Porter at a cost of like $50 million uh, and also give him a player option for next year when they're going to face even more financial pressure. No, you'd see, this is what a good organization does. You see whether Jonathan Kaminga can contribute in what's ultimately going to be a most likely a backup role like I, I think they made the right decision there even if you don't know that Jonathan Kaminga is going to be able to contribute like when you give draft a guy number seven like okay yeah we can carve out a backup role for you at 18 minutes a game yes uh, sure yeah I would agree that this is the correct arc of this. This is how it should have gone. Uh, I think the health of the situation is is in a good state. But last season, because Jonathan Kaminga was a rookie who, you know, even had a little knee injury in preseason, like had Chile games, you know, he was not part of the rotation. It was just much easier for Steve Kerr to spot minutes him. And if he's playing well, you know, keep him going. And there, there were stretches. There were three weeks at a time where Kaminga would be in a regular rotation. And then, you know, he fades a bit. Okay, pluck him from the rotation, particularly in the playoffs. You know, uh, you know, you could go to Porter where safety nets a little bit off. You know, it's gone this season where, um, you know, Jonathan Kaminga, if he's trying to do a bunch of off ball stuff or he's chucking threes. And there was times last season, I remember when he looked off Clay Thompson, I, th I believe it might have been Clay Thompson's return game. It was early in his return, but Clay Thompson was like, no, it was a game where Clay was feeling it. I remember he was like four or four. You know, when Clay's feeling it, like the ecosystem of the Warriors always just throw the ball to him for like five straight possessions until he misses. And yeah. Kaminga got it, looked off a scorching hot Clay Thompson to take his own three. And Steve Kerr, you know, I remember that being like, a, you know, that's such a rookie move. I remember he, I think he might have got pulled, but that was the thing last season. You could go to the porters of the world, whoever, and like, you know, you could, Kaminga could disappear for three weeks at a time, uh, you know, and, and it wasn't that big a deal. That can't happen anymore. So I just think the fact that I, I think one of the big stories will be, you know, will Kaminga be okay with, uh, you know, the type of role this team needs? Will James Wiseman be okay with it? Because both those guys in the long term, in their minds, want to be like, you know, get the ball and go type scorers, 18, 20, 24 point per game scorers, where the truth is this Warriors team, what, what they want to do this season can really use their skill sets as, you know, pick and roll diving 
running, rim running, transition, like simplified defensive, uh, you know, roles too. And if they try to get out of the box a little bit, that's where I think, you know, the modern era players, the legends are going to be like, that's not what this team needs. And that's where I think uh, there might be some bumping shoulders that last season, you know, it, hmm. it was easier to just kind of wipe away because you had rotation options ahead of them, really. All right. So so that's one big thing. We'll return to some of those players individually a little bit later on. Anything else you would point to as a theme of this season uh, as the Warriors try to actually repeat? Yeah, there was like desperation last season to like establish themselves early and there was no clay thompson and and you know you go listen to our podcast last year and, and we're talking about like can they get out of the playing range and um you know kid do we really believe that they're title contenders and i think you know we were probably both and, I, and i'm just using us as examples but really the entire you know media landscape nba media landscape was questioning whether this this team could even get back to like fringe contender status now yeah i I thought it was possible i thought it could happen and especially after preseason like i bumped up my prediction but obviously i didn't have them winning the championship but i i felt like there there was a path yeah but uh, and that would be considered ambitious right you would have been on the high end of like you know optimism yeah uh the famous one is john hollinger who we both love but he had the warriors 11th i mean warriors fans still love to, to reference that and now coming into this season, they they're more established. Clay Thompson's back healthy should be, you know, and we can again we can get to him, but should have a full season ahead of him and and looked probably as good as you could have expected considering uh you know what he's come off. Jordan Poole has blossomed. Andrew Wiggins and Kavon Looney are suddenly uh part of what Steve Kerr, you know, I did an interview with him maybe a month ago or so. He's calling them the foundational six, you know, obviously including Steph and Draymond Clay. Uh yeah. and they're just established and and yes like I said, this young era coming behind him will, will be an interesting subplot of the season, but they're the defending champs and they enter the season much different than last season as far as, you know, you were looking for, I guess, differentiators. Yeah. Um, two other things that I, I would add in. Um, one is just Steph Curry and Draymond Green. Like, I, I think Clay, if he gives them what he gave them in the playoffs last year, some moments where he could go off, he's always going to get guarded. His defense improved. You know, I, I, I think he's, they don't need him to play at an all-star level they need him to play at a solid level i think you can anticipate that he's probably going to do um you know being older but also being a year off the injury i think you can pencil him in for at least what he was giving them by the finals last year um you know jordan Poole probably take a step forward the young guys we mentioned hey you know i mean i mean they're not in that bigger roles right if jonathan if they just decide jonathan kaminga and james wiseman are unplayable uh you know moody i think you you could probably count on him to at least give you a few minutes in the playoffs he did that last year Uh, um so like those guys would be nice they're question marks they can make things easier ultimately i don't think this team rises or falls with those guys they rise or fall with steph curry and draymond green and it looked like for two three months last year and then he got hurt that steph curry maybe this is the first time he might not be that guy and then uh once he got his sea legs under him in the playoffs he completely destroyed dallas and completely destroyed boston and looked like the best player or the second best player in the world potentially and so you know this is he's going to turn 35 and there are just so few players who have played at that level that he played at even at age 34 to be a top two three player in the nba at 34 there you can probably 
tick off a list of Bill Russell and LeBron James, Michael Jordan, Kareem, that's probably about it, uh, who have played at the level that Steph Curry played on a championship winning team last year. So can he do that again at 35? We probably won't know the answer to that until the playoffs. And then maybe even more importantly is going to be Draymond Green and you know what, and you also consider his contract situation as well. I mean, that's, he's the guy to me that that's like just one of the huge questions of like, you know, because he even showed some slippage in last year's playoffs. Some, he had the injury as well. He was struggling to get back. Wasn't playing his full minutes. Not not a normal injury, by the way. Remember? No. No. You know, a scary injury. Uh, An injury that I think there was at times they didn't know. You know, I mean, they they always publicly put like they believe he was going to come back and he did. But, you know, he's talked about not being able to run for so long. And, you know, that obviously gets you out of shape. Um, Yeah, I'll go, you know, I guess person by person right there. Steph, a young 35. Uh, I think we all know like different, you know, if you don't live the correct lifestyle or, you know, whatever, like you can age quickly, you know, by 35, you can a lot of a lot of 35 year olds out of the league. Right. But Steph is two things. Number one, I mean, remember Jason Kidd during the playoffs called him, I think, the best conditioned athlete in the league. You might have even said he's ever seen. But uh, that was such a problem in that series. You know, Luca, you would consider Luca the rising young, you know, athlete that 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 should you know is looking to kind of overtake Steph and and the advantage he should have is youth right now Steph's in way better shape than Luca because Steph's in way better shape than anybody uh and I think one thing you can count on with Steph Curry is like he he's gonna stay in that type of shape because he's an obsessive worker I mean you can you go on uh online and you can see all of his current off-season workouts he is going to return to camp basically cardio wise in mid-season shape and we've seen all the ways that that has helped his game so I expect him um not only because of that, but because, you know, you Del Curry aged really well. Del Curry was still hitting threes at like 37, 38. Uh, yeah. Seth, see, you know, they, they say these, they, they kind of mature late and then age better into their 30s, you know, as a family, it seems. So uh, I just think there's no reason to believe uh, that there's any significant drop off from Steph Curry coming. Maybe, you know, marginal stuff. Um, and then as far as Draymond goes. But well, quick, quickly on stuff yeah. before we get to Draymond. You know, I mean, the biggest thing that Steph proved to me in the Dallas series and the Boston series was he could still get by guys and he's not doing it quite the same way as he did you know back in 2016 when it was with all these like ridiculous ball handling moves uh you know it was more kind of just attacking using his strength you know like Al Horford tries to forearm and he just like just powers through Al Horford right like that was but you know when you had Boston trying to switch Al Horford Grant Williams good switch defenders uh you know some of, of Dallas's guys you know Maxi Kleba good switch defender as a big and like they couldn't keep Steph Curry in front of them or if they did then he would be able to shoot the step back on them so that's just where you're going to be watching it again of like all right can he beat guys like that off the dribble and then if you if you can't switch now there just is no scheme to deal with Steph Curry and you know the Warriors are just going to be an elite offense when he's on the floor again so that's the biggest thing that I will be watching with him in addition obviously to injury as it gets older but yeah let's talk dream on here who I I think as you're going to start to get to is probably the bigger question mark yeah he's a more concerning candidate as as you're talking drop off uh and he's entering a contract situation you know that um i think 
will only add to the pressure. Uh, it does not appear at this point that an extension is coming, an extension that he he would like. Um, you know, he does have two more years if he wants them because he has a player option after this season. He can enter unrestricted free agency, but it, it's a point where, like, you know, him having a good season will be very lucrative to him, which should provide the motivation that, you know, is needed because I do think that's another question about just the Warriors in general. Like, there was such hunger to get back to the mountaintop last season. In some ways, you can question whether the hunger will will maintain ha- having conquered. Um, but for Draymond, you wonder if the, the next contract motivation can, can be a help in this scenario. He remains extremely vital to them. Uh, regular season defense, I got it written down here. They were 106.6 last season, second. Uh, but they were 108. They had a 102.8 defensive rating with, with Draymond on the floor. That is how they became a title contender again. Was that remember that first two months? No clay. Jordan Poole's rising, so it kind of fills in for that spot. But Draymond Green and what he was able to do defensively uh, in the team scheme reestablished who they were. For for two months, they were by far the best defense in basketball, and still in the playoffs. You know his flaws offensively at times showed, but he still you know especially remember game five, game six in Boston. He was everywhere in game yeah. six in Boston defensively, like. He remains for them to win a title. He needs to. He can't have much of than minor slippage. And and you know you do wonder health wise. Um, it's not that the, the injury he had is necessarily like you know it's like a hamstring where oh he, maybe he's going to re-aggravate it. But it is just the type of thing where where the wear and tear did show. Uh, and you know he is a six foot five big uh, who is getting later and later in his career, and and the miles are adding up and. Uh, the it's it's fair to question you know how long he'll hold up yeah the the two things I would point to just watching him obviously the intelligence is there I think actually his feet uh have held up pretty well whether it's on closeouts I mean you remember that ridiculous block he had on a corner three at, at, at the end of a quarter against the the Mavs for example uh and then also moving his feet in front of guys like he was guarding Jalen Brown putting him on Jalen Brown uh, really helped them shore up defensively in that Boston series for example if he's got a switch on to a Luca like he's able to totally still stay in front of that guy um where it's fallen off is the explosion uh on the defensive boards I would say he's not what he used to be you know even just like getting up and like tipping away defensive rebounds like he's even kind of he's not as athletic I go I go watch the 2016 series against the thunder or the Cavs or whatever like not only is like randomly in game seven he's hitting seven threes and scoring 32 points which will never happen but he's like getting up to the rim and blocking shots remember that portland west finals four game sweep 17 blocks in four games he yeah i think actually that might have been that might have been the first round okay i mean that era draymond green could block seven no no, like he he's not blocking shots the way he used to i mean he's he's still plugging the gaps and rotating early and he can use his chest some as a rim protector but yeah it's it's not the same so but he still is an elite defensive player i think he if he had just played the full season he would have been my pick for defensive player of the year um you know i think there was a little bit of a drop off coming back from that nerve issue and uh you know we'll see what kind of shape he's going to come in to you know he got married this off season you know you just you never know with him but i think if he is motivated as far as the the contract situation um they talked a real lot quickly though yeah they talked a lot early you know when again they went 18 and 2 to to rip off last season um and i remember both kerr and draymond talking about how important the olympics were to him because he spent an offseason playing basketball and came in like you know somewhat near mid-season shape whereas as you mentioned uh you know there is not any competitive basketball to keep his 
mind and body going this summer. He did get married, you know, which is congrats to him. And, and we'll, we'll just see what, again, I, I do think the contract motivation might be beneficial for the Warriors in some ways, but in other ways, you know, if, he, if he's not rewarded coming off a title, you know, does that cause any issues? We'll see. Um, but yeah. Man, it is crazy to think that I've been working with Helix Sleep since 2015. And I think that's because my story with them seems to really resonate with listeners. If you've never heard it before, that was kind of the beginning of the direct-to-consumer boom. And there was another very prominent mattress company at that time that was trying to convince you that mattresses were one-size-fits-all. They found the one formula, the one mattress that was going to work for everyone. My then-girlfriend, now-wife, and I ordered that mattress. We ended up having to return it because, hey, guess what? Not everyone is the same. And then she did some more research and found Helix Sleep. We took their sleep quiz and we found a mattress that actually worked for us and our body types. And uh, Helix offers 20 unique mattresses. Everybody sleeps differently. And Helix mattresses are designed for specific sleep positions and field preferences, hot or cold, side sleeper, back sleeper. So take that Helix sleep quiz, find your perfect mattress in under two minutes and it's shipped straight to your door, free of charge. It's no risk because you really need to sleep on the mattress in your own home. You're like, well, how should I order this if I can't sleep? I'm like, yeah, you're not going to learn anything by going to the mattress store and sleeping on the mattress where, do I take my shoes off? Do I leave my shoes on? But then my feet kind of hang off the bed because I don't want to put my shoes on the bed. And is it weird that I'm laying here for more than 30 seconds? You can't tell anything under those circumstances. You might as well just order it, get it sent to your house, get that 100 night trial they're 10 to 15 year warranty depending on the model and there's never been a better time to try a helix sleep mattress because they are offering 20 percent off all mattress orders and two free pillows for our listeners at helixsleep.com slash capspace easier slash capspace we talk about all the time here on the program that's helixsleep.com slash capspace this is their best offer yet i can attest to that since i've been working with them for nine years and it won't last long with helix better sleep starts now don't forget that slash capspace url to let them know that you came from us man i just love american giant just an amazing clothing company i was reminded again of how much i love it when i drove from california to montana over the all-star break and you know what it's like when you're on a long road trip and it's cold particularly when it starts off warm in the bay and then we get into some really cold areas you're like well i don't want to wear like my jacket in the car but then i get out to fill gas I'm going to be freezing, but the American Giant hoodie was perfect because despite being made out of a nice heavy material that'll keep you warm, it's not too hot as well. So I was able to wear it in the car, not be too hot, step out of the car and still be warm enough when I was filling up gas or going into a restaurant or something that I didn't feel like I needed my jacket, even when it was cold outside. These things are amazingly durable. I proposed to my wife wearing an American Giant hoodie in the Grand Canyon almost seven years ago. I still own that same hoodie. I still wear it constantly. And American Giant has since spread out into all sorts uh, of other types of clothing like their premium slub crew tee the no bs high-rise pant the slim roughneck pant featured in giant magazine issue two every american giant piece is made in america and designed to last no exceptions and it provides year-round comfort so find a closet staple for every part of your spring days at american-giant.com and get 20 percent off your first order when you use that finger code capspace at checkout you remember we talk about capspace all the time here on the program that's 20 percent off your first order at american-giant.com don't forget that cap space code to let them know you came from us 
Well, well, how would you be handling that? Because uh, I, I mean, you you uh, you wrote it. He basically was like, "Hey, I'm I'm eligible for uh, the maximum possible extension that you can give me." So, uh, hey, you know, I played like the defensive player of the year. We won the championship. Uh, how about it, guys? Um, you know, it doesn't seem like that's forthcoming. How would you be handling that if you were Golden State? They seem to be of the mind uh, of they don't seem motivated to extend anybody really, and that includes Jordan Poole, Andrew Wiggins, and Clay Thompson. And I think in all cases, because, uh, you know, Jordan Poole's a restricted free agent, so there's some level of control. Clay's got a couple of years left on his deal. Draymond can go into unrestricted free agency next summer, but, but you know, has a player option. And um, they say they've never extended anybody with two years technically left on a deal. Uh, Steph, it was only one. And also, you know, coming off a title is when players have the biggest negotiation power, right? I mean, like, right. And they, are, I, I just knowing how they operate, like that's not the time that they want to reward people is when their leverage is at its lowest, essentially. Um, I, that's why, I mean, I think if Wiggins wanted to get an extension this summer, I think it's realistically possible, but again, it, it would have to be a team friendly extension. They're not just gonna be like, wow, Andrew Wiggins, you were unbelievable what, in the playoffs. What would you consider to be team friendly in the twenties? And yeah, you know, like, he, I mean, high twenties. Yeah. Yeah. Given I agree. Caps I agree. I think if he goes open market and really tries to go get every dollar he can get, you know, if let's say I'm again, we don't know how he's going to play this upcoming season, but if he was unrestricted right now, you know, his reputation is at its highest ever in the NBA. He'd, he'd probably be 33, 35 million, you know, per year type player. So a team friendly would be 27, let's say. Um, yeah. And, you know, pool should command a, you know, a um, hundred, you know, at least four year, hundred million type deal, right? Yeah. The Brunson. Uh, uh, yeah. Anthony Simons yeah. is the floor for him. The floor. Um, so if, if pool maybe wanted to come and, and was willing to take something like that, you know, as this gets closer to the rookie extension deadline, you know, maybe the Warriors will talk about that, but I just think considering where their tax bill is going, considering how, um, the other thing you know that I do think gives them leverage that that a lot of other teams that are, are entering free agency with some of their bigger name players is these guys want to be on the Warriors. You know, Andrew Wiggins wants yeah. to remain on the Warriors. Draymond Green, um, I think yeah. here's your reward for being a good teammate and wanting to be here. We're going to pay you less. Yeah. So that's where I just. <laughs> but, think, but I mean, that kind of happens, right? Yeah. That's where I think there's an impasse because just the way the Warriors operate business wise, I just don't think they want to negotiate from a point of like, you know, lower leverage than like this is the lowest point of leverage as a team you would have with pretty much all these guys. Um, So, you know, could that cause angst? Uh, You know, the media day answers will be interesting uh, if there's slumps, if there's, you know, if one guy does decide to take an extension and and another doesn't, is there any locker room, uh, you know, turmoil we'll see we have no idea that yeah. I, I mean does it really matter though in the end like that's like regular scene yeah shit. like like they're everyone's gonna be like locked and loaded for the blast maybe pool might be the only one i i would say um but you know, yeah. but but i guess so so i mean we did see them for the first time ever lose someone over money the, that happened with gary payton the second i think ultimately having moody in the wings and knowing some of their upcoming bills and just you know how much it would have cost to retain payton like they made a 
two-year offer it seemed like at like around 15 million guaranteed to keep him and he got a two plus one for almost 25 with the with portland who's like kind of the one team that could really use him and so i i would probably would have bit the bullet and let him go as well if if i were bob myers knowing what their budget is and they said they can't you know joe said on tim's podcast that you know 400 million seems like kind of a a a pretty solid line for them so i i think given all of that like wiggins you can go into the season with draymond you can go into the season with if he declines his player option because they only have one year left clay yeah no, no reason to deal with him at this point he's got two guaranteed years left um so so just no reason to do that at this point and then pool pool to me is probably the hardest one i would say um because i think i would really like to have him under contract for next off season because then you can trade him like if if he's a restricted free agent you know you you have this massive offer sheet and you also have a potential with pool like what if he just has the same playoffs last year that he had this year or or, or next year that he had last year right that's that's a player where you're like yeah you know it's it's great to have you during the regular season and we need someone else to be the point guard after Steph but if you can't stop any like if you can't play next to Steph Curry more than a few minutes a game in the playoffs due to your defensive issues you're just not that valuable to us I disagree yeah yeah okay because Jordan Poole Steph Curry got hurt in uh remember when Marcus Smart uh fell on Steph's yeah. foot? No, I mean he was unbelievable. I I, I know where you're Jordan going here. Twenty four point seven points per game in, in March and April. I believe it was twenty one games to end the regular season. Forty seven percent shooting, forty one percent from three. He hit eighty five threes in March and April, by far the most in the NBA. He was just the best three point yeah. shooter for two months. Then he went into the playoffs, which a playoffs which you were correctly pointing out some of the defensive flaws in the late, late stages of the playoffs, the West Finals NBA finals. He scored in those playoffs in 22 playoff games, 17 a game off the bench on 51, 40, 92 shooting. He is the, was the best free throw shooter in basketball last year. He won the free throw crown in the regular season. He is in the future as Steph marginally does decline over the next few years and misses games, you know, has regular season Knicks. I mean, to me, he's such a savior this season if Steph misses a month, right? You just plug Jordan Poole in a point guard. And, yeah. Whereas a year ago, you're like scared. If Steph, you know, remember the uh, season that they missed the play in like Steph missed eight games. They went one and seven and it was like, they cannot win a game right. without Steph Curry. You can now with Jordan Poole. Clay Thompson misses the first few months. You're still the best team in basketball because Jordan Poole is slotted in at the two guard. And I just think as you transition towards the next era and there's going to be plenty of kind of mesh within that, you just have to have Jordan Poole. Well, okay. So so I think I don't think that what I laid out as a possible scenario is necessarily likely. Like I'm hopefully he's going to get a little bit better defensively. He should. And you know, he might just even be so much better offensively that he just ha- has to be on, on the floor. Um, but I do think there is a scenario where you're just like, man, like you can't play him and Steph Curry together in the playoffs. Like you're just like if you go up against Memphis, like John Morant is making him fall down on every possession, just going right at him, right? I mean, they, they just, you know, Steve Kerr is like, hey, if you could even just like slightly compete on these possessions, like that would make a big difference for us. You know, like it, it's, uh, it, it, he really was just, you know, almost Trey Young level up bad defensively in the playoffs. And so I think it, like if you go through that experience again, like I understand he's a very valuable player, but that's why I'm like, hey, you, you need to have, because everything that you're saying, he's very, very valuable to most 
most teams, particularly in the regular season, who need a player like that, right? Like he would be a great fit on the Orlando Magic, who have just an ass load of cap space next year. For teams I've right? floated to me, Magic, Spurs, um, Pacers, potentially. You know, obviously they got a yeah. Halliburton, maybe. Huh. I, I mean, the Magic is like that's like the most obvious one uh, to me. I think he would be an amazing fit there. But uh, you know, for a team that's just trying to get into the playoffs and add it a young piece you know like he could evolve into like a max level of offensive player potentially but that's why i think you should have under contract because if you do and it's for you know less than the max which obviously that's the only way they would extend him and he has a a great year but then isn't valuable in the playoffs he's worth more to other teams than he is to you so then you have him under contract and you can make a trade if it just turns out like hey this guy is just never going to take a step forward defensively like we can't play him next to Steph, and you know you could get draft picks you could get other guys who fit better that's kind of my thought on i think they should be pretty aggressive in trying to extend him like i mean it's kind of paradoxical of like we should be aggressive trying to extend him because he might not work out here <laughs> like that that actually protects you in that circumstance whereas if he's like yeah he's not that valuable else he's still only playing 20 minutes a game in the playoffs how can we match a max offer sheet from another team well now you just have him and you can either trade him or hey he's not on the max and so it's not the end of the world to have him still that's that's kind of my thought i we're we're kind of going far afield here yeah well i mean where i agree with you to me like yeah i think he's heading towards a max contract or like near you know he's at least like you said simon's contract the floor getting towards brunson and beyond um because the efficiency i mean he could be an it seems at least if this trend continues to give me an efficient hub of the offense so yeah if you can extend him for something more reasonable there's an argument to do that now despite the fact that i think they want to maintain somewhat of financial flexibility to make moves next summer when the you know the big blinking light concerning tax bill that could go 400 500 range if they decided to pay everyone is next season not this season um but if you can get them at a at a below market value essentially is what i would call it uh, i do think his i do think his playoffs have been underrated you know you mentioned the memphis series and sure there's the time joss spun him you know really for like kind of like the game ceiling layup in game two they don't win game one in memphis which to me is the biggest game of the series he scores like 30 something in that game i mean like pool or i mean uh, curry and clay weren't good jordan Poole won that game in memphis it, you look at the finals when yeah he's playing 22 minutes a game or whatever it was because because of his defensive limitations, he scores like 14, 17, 14 in, in, the, in the three wins to, to to clinch it. He in game six in Boston because he's built. I think he's built as like a confident poise scorer in every type of environment. He breaks that game away in the second quarter in Boston Garden yeah. game six. Like yeah, the 21 0 run. Yeah. yeah like, I just don't think he's like, sometimes I feel like he gets talked like, oh, he's Ennis Canner in the playoffs. Like we can't play. Like you truly just like cannot play an Ennis Canner in the playoffs. Like Jordan Poole can be targeted, but Jordan Poole flip side, you look at some other games, like he's straight up one games offensively in the playoffs. Uh, so I, I, I just think that his defensive, you know, warts are just being a little bit uh, over, overemphasized compared to what his offense did on a huge stage. Well, I mean, I I think just the proof there is because, and, and this kind of plays into what this season is going to be too. I mean, we thought in the first two games that Denver series, holy shit, like this Jordan Poole, Steph, Clay together, yeah. like this is just going to be, what's the new name for this? This that was a pool party. That was a ridiculous time, by the way, when everyone was right, trying right. to. I mean, no, I, but although I mean, what they did to that Nuggets team in those two games was just insane. But and I'm sure Steve Kerr offensively would have loved to just start those three guys, but you couldn't do it, right? I mean, you can't. 
and so to just have your team built with jordan Poole making 30 million and clay making 40 and steph making 50 but oh we can't play those three guys together very much in the playoffs like that's that's a problem right like the coaching staff believed that that unit couldn't hold up and more specifically that just playing steph and jordan Poole together couldn't really hold up now if clay in, continues the improvement he showed towards the end of the playoffs defensively maybe that unit becomes more tenable and i think we'll see a lot of that group in the regular season yeah. well they were dominant sure. I, i'm looking right now curry pool in the regular season together last season best two-man combo on the team plus 304 and 964 minutes you add clay right. into that they played a lot less minutes because clay wasn't around that much plus 96 and 129 minutes i think that's going to be very usable in the regular season like i think probably they need to get to that a lot there are deep playoff concerns but nate you are a very cold hearted you know roster building type person shouldn't yeah, we be talking my wife tells me shouldn't shouldn't we be talking more about clay thompson and and the need for his salary to decline as you're talking about you know future money you know financial expenditures uh clay thompson now what is he 32 uh obviously yeah. coming off two devastating injuries and, and and just where his career is heading franchise legend for sure i mean we know the name but jordan Poole's 23 heading towards 24 like if you are just you know I guess planning out the future, wouldn't you think pool is more valuable to have around again in a cold hearted way, you know, deeper into the this decade? Yeah, and we'll see how play clay plays this year too. You know, I think it's like he's he's and I mean this team has been built in some respects like Andrew Wiggins, they acquired him uh, on this principle of like, hey, you know what? Yeah, this guy's overpaid, but he can help us. Like Clay Thompson absolutely can still help them. Well, you know, he also is making forty three million in the twenty three, twenty four season. So yeah, I think like the hard decisions are going to come uh, next season but for this season they they should be pretty fucking stacked like um any other like players you want to talk about like possible uh, evolution yeah know, well i think standpoint? i think it's really interesting to discuss andrew wiggins and kavon looney because you know who they were before the playoffs begin and who we believe them to be now uh yeah because andrew wiggins was consistently like you would probably say their second best player draymond well well and also he i mean he did make it like obviously him being selected an all-star starter and frankly an all-star at all was ridiculous but he played very very well in that same starting stretch that you've been talking about and then that was an underrated reason like basically about when Draymond went down he completely fell off a cliff as well but then was able to re-establish in the playoffs yeah so he was suddenly you know he's never rebounded more than like four uh per game uh like at any season and like that's obviously been one of his it, it, it's spoken so much to to i guess the criticisms of him or just the desires from minnesota from him to like up his game is like you know be more physical get in there and rebound you're six foot seven bouncy you know two-way theoretical two-way wing like you need to get more than four rebounds a game he just never ever ever did it and then suddenly in the playoffs he averaged i think like 7.7 in nba finals he's having 15 rebound games he was second in the entire NBA and offensive rebounds in the playoffs. And then he like went on Andre Iguodala's uh, podcast postseason and Iguodala was kind of, you know, I guess joking with him about it. And Wiggins was like, yeah, I guess I didn't know it was that easy. I, I just got to start, I guess, keep doing that. So is he that type of rebounder and physical presence? Like, did, did he get unlocked in the playoffs into a different level? Like, is that who you see next season? Because if it is, I mean, they... they 
I mean, he's he's a legitimate like second best player on a title team if he is who we saw in the in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, it was quite the ensemble cast. Uh, yeah, I, would say. I mean, yeah. yes, I mean, he, he even playing the way he did in the playoffs. You know, when you look at oh, who's the second best player on most title teams? Like, I don't think he's you know at that level compared to well, most. Uh, I would just these, I, but. I agree with particularly offensively. We're talking. He doesn't have to do as much near as much creation. There are moments yeah. where he gets to the mid range, and it, while it's still somewhat of an inefficient shot they need it it's kind of what durant at a much higher level used to do for them but defensively right. in the playoffs uh you know guarded luca better than mikhail bridges guarded luca and then was like great on jason tatum in the finals and that to me like what he put on film in the west finals and nba finals was like top five top 10 wing defender in the league type stuff yeah, that no, I, I mean, I, there's a, a a certain subscriber of mine who's a, a huge Warriors homer, but he was making the point uh, at one point early in the playoffs, like, oh, like Andrew Wiggins is just playing better than Mikael Bridges, like he's a better three and D guy than Mikael Bridges. I was like, oh come on, he's nowhere near at that level defensively, but it clearly was the case. Certainly as an isolation defender, yeah. he was better. You know, I'm not sure if he's better getting over screens conventionally, but the Warriors also don't really play that way uh, that much, and he's got also got pretty good size to deal with players uh, on switch as well so yeah i mean he played it at a level of one of the best three and d guys uh in the nba maybe even the best uh by you know the time that you know he got on in transition as well like he, he uh you know made a ton of winning plays so yeah i mean he i don't expect him to take a step forward like that hasn't really been the pattern of his career i would say you know i wouldn't I say step still- forward my question is like is who you saw in the playoffs who he is or is he back to who yeah. he kind of I, was I, I mean i think it's just it's just gonna depend depend on the night and i think you know being in the playoffs really helped him to focus in and be more consistent in the effort areas i mean i think that's more than the score like I think that's always particularly the way this team is built and the fact that they don't go to him you know and pick and roll or anything uh and with the emergence of pool and clay being back I mean I think if anything his offensive role will decrease this year but yeah it's just a question of like the level can he be as consistent on the boards and defensively uh yeah I think that's that'll be the goal for him is just to do that even more on a nightly basis and then hopefully not get like too fucked up by this free throw thing um yeah which was odd yeah BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Anyone who's seen our YouTube videos knows that I don't wear formal stuff all the time. So when it's time to dress up rather than dress down, I highly recommend Inochino. They were the official outfitter of my wedding. I got my tux from there. All my groomsmen got their sport jackets from there as well. I felt really good about having them be the outfitter of my wedding because all my groomsmen were going to get stuff that they could continue to wear that fit them perfectly. Because when you go somewhere else, you're not going to get something that's made for you. So why not measure yourself in 10 minutes or visit a showroom rather than feeling like you're wearing somebody else's suit that they tried and failed to tailor for you. And not only does Indochino have the suits that made them famous, but now they've got everything. Blazers, pants, women's wear, outerwear, designed and made for you. Hundreds 
of high quality fabrics to choose from european wools linen cottons tons of colors tons of patterns you can customize things like the lapel the vents the pockets and you'll get a piece that is personalized for you in fit and style level up your game with indochino go to indochino.com use the code capspace using our capspace we talk about all the time here on the program you get 10 percent off any purchase of 399 dollars or more that's 10 percent off at indochino i-n-d-o-c-h-i-n-o indochino.com and don't forget that capspace code to let them know that you came from us the other guy i wanted to talk about looney uh who yeah. you know if you go back a year ago right now you're worried big time about his health and how he's just physically gonna uh like you know where his career is going just because of all the different you know malady of injuries that he's had over the years he just went and led the entire nba games played this season didn't miss one regular season game and uh, played every playoff game uh and then you know there were times it felt again you mentioned the denver series where the warriors again for like the 95th time were trying to like minimize kavon looney and, and kind of get him out of their plans by going with this small lineup but by late in the memphis series when they were struggling when after stephen adams came back steph curry draymond green go to the coaching staff and they're like no go back to kavon looney start him next to draymond despite the fact that in 2022 that's two complete non-shooters non-pick and roll you know scores together and he gets 22 rebounds uh, you know in the biggest uh, might have been the biggest game in the playoffs they felt like memphis tested them maybe more than anybody and then from there started at center the rest of the way led the entire nba in offensive rebounds in the playoffs uh was a really good defensive player i think still remains one of the most underrated defensive centers in the league uh his offensive limitations remain but for this team I mean, he he was playing over Draymond in game four, which, again, you know, as I'm yeah. talking about the big pivot points, pinnacle points of the, that Warriors title run, game four was the Steph Curry game, maybe the greatest or, or the signature game of his career. But that was also the Draymond Green benching game. And Draymond Green cannot get benched by Steve Kerr while he's struggling in game four if Kevon Looney isn't playing the best basketball of his career. Uh, and he was. And Looney was great in that game, in the entire playoffs. They rewarded him with really, you wouldn't, I don't want to, I know. No, you would dispute it being a below market contract because clearly, you know, if, if he could have got more, he would have. But it's a very reasonable contract moving forward to the point that now you're entering this season. He's like the cemented starter, despite James Wiseman sitting there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it you, you do want again, like the body's got to hold up. But if it does, like, you know, they've it's just going to be interesting how hit the him and Wiseman seesaw goes over the next year or two because and they tried to start Wiseman over him James Wiseman's first game ever as a 19 year old and Looney just keeps holding on to a job in this franchise yeah and he took some steps forward last year I thought as a finisher around the rim he clearly has lost explosion uh you know he used to be able to get an occasional alley-oop like back in like 2019 like he can't even close to doing that anymore and uh you know I think Marcus wrote about how he's gotten uh gotten stronger to play more in the pivot but maybe has lost a little bit moving his feet that was another big point was you know for him to be able to switch on to Luca like no he can't switch on to John Morant you know like those quick point guard guys the way he used to uh but he can still guard a Luca or a Jason Tatum like that level of quickness guy he's a wonderful defensive center even playing in a conventional pick and roll style he gets a lot of these Tim Duncan blocks he's a great rebounder on both ends like as long as you're starting him Draymond and Andrew Wiggins like you're gonna be very very good defensively when you've got those three out there so um let's talk a little bit more here hear about the three young guys now Kaminga Wiseman Moody you know just how do you see them 
just fitting in, let's talk just in terms of their role in the rotation, first of all, and then where they realistically can improve this year. Yeah, again, I think they're, and we're, we, you can add Dante DiVincenzo into the to mid-rotation. Yeah, yeah, we haven't even talked about him yet. Yeah, we haven't. Uh, you know, he's kind of, I guess you would say, the Gary Payton replacement. But, you know, if he's if DiVincenzo is considered right around seven in the rotation, I mentioned the foundational six that Kerr is calling it. We're talking basically eight, nine, ten are those young guys. Um, I think Moses Moody, you you referenced it earlier, but he's the most plug-and-play, like, ready to just, like, play his role. Like, he, he fits very well in this stage of his career as an eighth man. Uh, he had moments in in the Dallas series where he showed it. He can hit, he should be able to hit open threes. He can do a little like you know they love the point five basketball, make a decision quick. He does it if he catches and and there's a lane he can go to the rim. Um, make you know he makes smart passes. He's not any type of like pick and roll playmaker. Yeah. He he can he can dump it off to the big uh, yeah. when someone rotates over to him on a drive. Yeah, and and he while athletically and i know you've 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 uh talked about this in the past like you know you're not going to put him on an island on on a on a moran on a luca and expect him to stay in front but very smart team defender uh obsessive worker and studier uh, i mean you know i did an interview with him in vegas and he was talking about missing like he didn't trap the box one time early in the regular season and kerr and mike brown pulled him and like didn't play him for a week and he just spent like the next month telling the coaching staff i will never miss a, you know a trap the box again and then in the playoffs in that Dallas series he did it twice he did it one time on Brunson and, and got like a deflection and he was like he's just so pumped about like the minutia of defense for a young yeah. guy that uh just profiles as a very solid team defender uh so I think I know we're mentioning the three young guys but Moody to me almost seems like a, a limited veteran that you're fine with in the rotation at this stage of his career the much bigger questions well, are the, well quick, quickly on Moody I mean the two variables number one is how well he's going to shoot the ball i mean i think he's he's not a guy who's just going to be left open but is it can he get a little more aggressive from three you know can he be really a guy who's an asset from the outside maybe taking a few more shots that are more aggressive you know or is he going to be just kind of standing out there just shooting the open ones and sometimes you know it'll make him a 35 percent or whatever that's that's one and then the other I, I do think the how is he on an island defensively is very important i mean that's that's what is going to elevate him in the playoffs from you know and also he's going to be in competition for minutes with DiVincenzo as well so if you put him against Luca I mean he was getting blown by by basically anyone who attacked him in any kind of space not even Luca but you know even on closeout guys would blow by him you know like a Finney Smith or something like that in that Dallas series so can he get better there you know that's not the type of thing like that lateral movement that's that easy to improve um but certainly I think he's going to work at it and you know part of that is just going to be the scouting report and mental approach and just getting better with the I mean he looks strong out there like I think the strength is probably his best defensive asset but yeah like can he get uh because if he can't be part of their switching system then there's only going to be a limited role for him in the playoffs which is kind of where where eventually we're talking i think he's going to be you know like you mentioned a pretty solid piece eighth man obviously you know he'll take over the damian jones a little bit of damian jones a little bit of gary payton the second or sorry not uh damian jones damian lee um you know kind of that backup shooting guard role so yeah um that's just that's where they are missing payton though and it's and it's irreplaceable you know that i mean he was just like his playmaking defensively is just like i mean he's the best playmaking guard defensively in the league led the nba in steals for 36 minutes last season uh and you know again ball pressure like wiggins can only do so much and even like jaw could get by wiggins like there they there was a reason gary payton number one 
started in that Memphis series to open it. And number two, why they were like so crestfallen when Dylan Brooks heard him uh, because they just didn't have a Morant defender. Uh, obviously, yeah. you know, the series played out how it did. But yeah, I mean, that's there is a there is a world where come late next season's playoffs, let's say they lose a playoff series, we might look back to them losing Peyton for money, regardless of if, you know, the, the money was so outrageous that it's it, we feel like it's a justifiable decision. But we might say that might have been why they lost this series because because they didn't have Peyton. Yeah, I, I mean, he is the guy who takes took this team to me from like an un, like a very, very good defense to like an un unbelievable defense and forcing turnovers getting on transition and offensively he was not a liability at all i mean he was offensive glass finishing around the rim transition hit enough open corner threes knew how to play with stuff screen for him slip out of those screens uh you know he grew up a point guard so he's able to make plays off the drill he's a very very valuable player and i think you know they got unlucky that portland who's kind of the one team that could use him in somewhat similar fashion to the way he was used here and i think if he were two years younger i would get on the warriors a lot more for not matching that offer but at 29 you do wonder how how much longer he can play that same style and is it effectively it's it's a spectacular style but it's somewhat of an injury prone style too you know i mean yeah. he would get, he got banged up a lot last season anyway but so again i think divincenzo and moody you feel pretty comfortable and if we're slotting this rotation around seven eight and then you start to wonder about kaminga and wiseman because their raw skill sets i think if utilized correctly and in a simplified way can really help. And and there have been games in the past. There's examples of this where Kaminga, you know, he had some huge regular season games um, and Wiseman even. I can remember a game against where, where you were roasting uh, the the calcified LaMarcus Aldridge, I believe you called him, where, where Wiseman had like nine dunks because they kept, you know, doing yeah. pick and roll and or, you know, hitting him in the dunker spot. Um it's a lob threat they don't have. It's the size they don't have. Um, but obviously, both Kaminga and Wiseman, and, and we can get, you know, if you want to break them down individually, but they have flaws that can, uh, you know, hurt you, uh, particularly on the defensive end. And I think both just, you know, I think rightfully have long-term offensive uh, dreams of what they can be that won't work unless it is the type of game where Steph Draymond and Clay sits. And there will be those type of games in the regular season. There'll probably be a ha handful of them and, and they can explore the studio space a little bit more when that happens. Yeah. But and, and they'll surely rest Looney some of these games yeah. and start Wiseman, yeah. you would think, uh, as well. I mean, there's no reason to push Looney real hard this this regular season. No. And, and you know, those games the, the will be good for them. But I think when we really talk about, like, hey, you're playing the Lakers in a big regular season game or, who you know, whoever. Uh, or, yeah, and then you get to the playoffs. Like, can they be okay and can they, I don't want to say master a role, but can they, you know, fit the role that they're needed in that their skill sets could actually in some ways thrive in without being so, you know, detrimental in the other ways where they want to grow. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every basket, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. 
Whether it's a three-pointer at the buzzer to tie the game or a player that goes two for two at the foul line. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. So, yeah, I think let's start with Kuminga first. I mean, we, we've locked in very closely on his summer league. I mean, I, I think he has, at this point, two skills that can be useful to this team, but he also has a lot of holes in his game. And the number one thing that I've actually been most impressed by with him is his individual on-ball defense. Um, like, in summer league, granted, not against the same level of competition, but, like, guys could not get past him one-on-one. Like, they would try him, and he would just, I mean, he just almost casually could cut them off. Like, he's strong enough you can't like get an elbow past him and turn the corner and he's just got quick feet he's huge like i was really impressed like basically anytime someone tried to dribble by him he just cut them um i thought that was really impressive like you talked about the morant matchup he might be to me just in a in space trying to guard john morant might be the best guy on the team already at that i would say um the rest of his defense you know his help defense is not great but he's really improved his individual defensive technique which was a huge weakness for him a year ago and then on offense obviously it's just a attacking the basket great handle for his size he can even like get into the post against some smaller smaller players get to the foul line like i thought that was even an underutilized skill even last year when you know other teams would put their point guard on him it's like hey throw, throw this guy a post up like he's just gonna go right through this guy and get it done uh if you when you're struggling to score sometime but other than that he's not bringing that much to table uh, to me and so can he like hit shots like i don't think so at this point like the free throws are a concern and you know as a team defender like you hope he could do more around the rim like defensively i think he's really more of like a one through three defender because he's not offering much in help defense uh, any reaction to all that yeah um the shooting is interesting he shot 34 percent from three last year 33.6 uh, you know after he went started the season something like oh a 12 one of 15 and from that point on he was like 36 37 it was yeah, encouraging it never feel it never felt real to me i i agree but it was weird. It was like, it's kind of going in. There were several times where you could tell the coaching staff was like, don't take that. And then he'd make it. And they're like, all right. Um, so he, and the other thing is he's not, you know how some of these like toolsy wings come in and they're like kind of reluctant three-point shooters. He's not a reluctant three-point shooter sometimes <laughs> to, to a detriment, right? He thinks he's like, you know, future Paul George in a sense. Um uh, they need because I think he's going to take them a lot and believes he should like maintaining, you know, like you said, you may not believe in like 34%, but like numbers can be the numbers they need to try to make I, sure. I mean, during the regular season, just fucking take them. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. So, uh, and then the free throw thing again, weird. Uh, he was 68% last year, which is not good, you know, especially for a guy. He's going to get to the line a ton because he's downhill. He's physical. You know, a lot of guys love hacking him. He, he, he misses them in bunches. Yeah, he does. And the, yeah, that's the thing. 68% in the in the uh, regular season. I think mean, it was like 30% in summer league. It was something wild. Uh, so, yeah. yeah I and mean, he, he had a game where I think he missed like his first eight or nine free throws at home. Yeah. As well. Yeah. It was regular season. It was getting like real tense in the crowd. But and he kept going to the line. Right. Again, another thing. What's no, interesting. No, no crowd grumbles like that Warriors crowd when like things start going poorly. Just like where they're just like, all right, come on, guys. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again what's i think long term a very 
positive for him is that, you know, you, you talk about like the Ben Simmons of the world. Okay. They've missed a few free throws. They don't want to go to the line. He's, he can be, Oh, a six from the line and he's going downhill and he's taking the hack and he's going yeah. to the line. Very similar to Giannis with yeah. the, that mindset. Yeah. But uh, as we talk about how much he can help this season's team, you know, that's when, Hey, you know, you don't want to, you know, be taking all those threes. Like you said, regular season. I think the regular season more than last year will be kind of a, a developmental ground just for, for, uh, some of these guys. So um, yeah. one of the problems, and, and this can shift us to a Wiseman conversation is, you know, th- these are their two most important prospects, right? A seventh overall pick and a second overall pick in recent drafts. I think they just, well, it, I, I mean, we, you're not counting pool in that you feel. he's like just already I, No, I, I pool to me is established at this point. Right. Uh, okay. I just mean, as they, at least they were considered like the, 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 you know, the, the sparkling beacon of this Joe Lake of next era was like these two, picks a second overall pick and a seventh overall pick they're hugely important um assets used to draft these these two um they are i think a little bit too similar offensively in what they can currently give the warriors and they occupy the same space and i just think it's going to be very difficult to play them together and and that yeah is is a problem I, I mean, I, you know what I'd love to see that would just be pretty interesting, I mean, especially if Kerr's just kind of fucking around the regular season? Play the three guards with those two dudes and just see what happens. I mean, the, the defense probably won't be too great, but I <laughs> uh, mean, probably not, what huh? a dunk fest that would be. Like that that would be like the best highlight group in the league with like Steph and Poole and Clay, and then those those two guys just dunking everything. Uh, that, that, that would be an interesting group. I, I would like to see that get at least a couple minutes a run, maybe when they're sitting Draymond and Luke. When you start those two guys how many whiff rotations until he can't take it anymore he's like joe michael green get in there yeah, or until i can't take it anymore yeah i guess so what was your assessment of wiseman summer uh, it just it looked a lot like the player we last saw you know whatever it was at yeah. this point 15 16 months ago um there are individual plays where you see like these flashes of if everything came together, he could, you know, have superstar potential essentially. Um, but then, you know, you watch over the course of 15 minutes and, you know, there's a fumbled pass here. There's a, you know, a late, uh, you know, block attempt here. There's a jumpy foul. There's just, uh, you know, not sensing a guy coming behind him on a cut. Uh, you know, there's a, a, a rebound in traffic where he takes an eight foot fadeaway instead of a one dribble dunk, which, you know, like it, physically he's capable yeah. of those doing. are the ones that are probably killing me the most at this point yeah i would say where he just is like he should never ever shoot a fadeaway ever like he should probably honestly never even shoot a jump hook at this point like he should just take every shot within four feet of the basket like he has no conception of like how do you like he's got this amazing body but no he never makes a power move it, it, yeah and I, I think you're also you should be okay with at this point of his development again in the regular season with some attempted threes you know some pick and pop threes he can hit them um i think you want in the modern nba if, if if there is that capability to grow that within him i think you know when he's 25 years old he should be a stretch big um so i think you're okay with the threes but yeah again the the iso post up jab step mid ranges the catch the offensive rebound and and, and fade away from a six foot nine center when you're seven foot one and can jump out of the gym like like you said power dribble into his chest where so i think like you there there's concern level entering the season on on uh you know what he'll be in 
you know, how, how he might affect, uh, you know, a winning environment. But at the same time, I do remember from his rookie season, if he could string eight, nine, 10 games together, and there was like basically two points where he did that, you did start to see some growth, some familiarity, yeah. a little bit of rhythm um, knocked off the rust. And you do wonder if, if, if he can, the big thing with him, like he's got to stay healthy enough to keep getting reps. Um, right. He's going to work with Dejan Milojevic, who is Nikola Jokic's, uh, you know, coach from, from Serbia. He's a guy. Did, did great work yeah. with Looney last yes, year. Yes, did great work with Looney. But I can I re- can remember talking to Dehan a few times last season as as the stop and go of the Wiseman rehab kept happening. And I talked to him in Stockton when Wiseman was finally at least playing a G League game. And it was like, you know, what are you expecting to see out here? He's like, we just got to see him play because he, he's like, I can't really work. You, you can only do so much without, you know, actual five on five work, which James Wiseman needs more than maybe anybody in the league at this point. So he's got to play a lot. I think they got to, you know, absorb some of the growing pains that's going to come with it and in hope over time sharpen some of the the rougher edges of his game and and at least by middle of the season he's like you know an effective rotation center in certain matchups and games where like you know just his size and lob ability in certain matchups like helps him win a game yeah i think that's fair and i did the one thing i would say two positives for me from summer league and you know obviously i've i was high on wiseman in the beginning maybe not quite as high as you were but then you know i've probably been lower on him than most people since then uh due to the lack of feel but i the two things i would take from summer league i did think the hands looked better uh, i like I, there were a few times where you know he'd get it like like going for rebounds his hands weren't good but he was at least he didn't have as many fumbled catches um and then he had one quarter in his first quarter that he played against the spurs where they he probably had like five or six stops at the rim just in that one quarter and i was like oh maybe this guy really is different and then he went back to just being exactly the way he was where he just didn't have as much awareness and activity defensively as was needed and you know was threatening the 10 fouls per game summer league foul out uh, after that but there there was at least a flash where he looked the best I, i'd seen him look defensively since like the hoop summit you know back when he was uh, a graduating senior so i'm hoping to see more of him i mean he is a tough fit you, you know just not being able to really play him with draymond probably i mean maybe you can maybe draymond will just throw him some lobs or something like you know steph does give you a lot of headroom to play non-shooters at the four or five so I, i'm looking forward to seeing him uh but i you know i still am i'm a little skeptical that at least by the end of this year that i think they'll probably keep him but that he may not develop enough to where you're like oh man 10 million for this guy you know which is like 60 million dollars in taxes and like hey we might lose draymond green or andrew wiggins or jordan pool because we have this guy on the roster like that's not going to be acceptable you know if they really do have kind of hard limit but i guess if there's anyone that uh joe would pay to keep it'd be it'd be wiseman um so la- the last theme i think we can, one thing one thing yeah, I, I just want to say I, I like him in a and i've said this for a while and, I, and there was plans to do this last season before he just couldn't get back but him in a second unit with jordan pool running a bunch of pick and rolls yep yeah i just i want to see that they want to see that it, it separates him from curry and, and Draymond uh, and and really their most valuable minutes are always Steph Curry minutes and and I think you just you, you can experiment with it with the second unit and I just I like that foundation of a second unit uh, w- just run a ton of pick and rolls with with, with Poole and Wiseman. 
Yeah, I think, and, and hopefully, like Jordan Poole to me is an underrated pick and roll passer. I think he is a pretty good decision maker once he actually is able to get penetration in the lane. So yeah, going against opposing second units, I, I think that could be a, a very interesting group. Uh, with you know, I don't think Wiseman, other than catching alley oops, is a great pick and roll player right now. But that's a, I mean, that's the number one thing you can get better at is catching on the move, uh, making you know, stepping around guys, finishing with touch, uh, using his length around the basket. Um, any like big weaknesses you would be concerned about for this team and i think we can focus on the playoffs obviously since that's the the main thing for this group i mean they get so turnover crazed at times <laughs> as you know i mean this is not not breaking news there um so that but i don't know i mean what do you think do, again like yeah. i do we've talked about it plenty so we don't gotta dive into it but fitting yeah. pool into a lineup in the deep playoffs where you want his offense and at times you want him clay and uh, curry on the floor at the yeah. same time yet you still want to defend at the highest level it's what they dealt with several times in last year's playoffs they have those six and how do you fit the correct five onto the floor yeah and then i think also just that elite defender against quicker smaller guards um not having peyton and yeah can divincenzo fill that role yeah maybe i don't know if he's going to be as good of a switch guy as peyton was though and, and you know not as much of a playmaker obviously just age and injuries is something that you can look at as well but i think even with the defections of bielitsa porter and peyton and lee i guess too it was even was good in the regular season like this was actually last year one of the deepest teams that we've seen for a contender and while they're not as deep probably in terms of raw number of players like Jamichael green's a good like kind of break glass in case of emergency guy to have um you know if they can get something out of these rookies in the regular season like i think they should be relatively deep again like they've got a lot of versatility as a strength like there's a lot of different looks that steve kerr can go to uh even if maybe playing pool and curry together isn't as defensively bulletproof as they would like to be they don't go quite as deep because you know you you're losing the damian lees the jtas who regular season plug and play could help jta was good in for the first half of the regular season too yeah um and you're going to patrick baldwin jr who's a complete project i would not expect uh you know any way for him to crack a legitimate rotation ryan rollins same with ryan rollins yeah yeah yeah, sorry yeah we'll see and then the you know they're still waiting on this andre iguodala decision but you know if he can actually get on the floor he actually helped him at times last season he just couldn't stay on the floor but you know he's at this point if he comes back penciled in at roster spot 14 and then for tax purposes i do not expect them like last season with peyton to hold a 15th roster spot so it gets a little bit emptier later in the roster but at the same time clay missed so much time last season that he's not expected to miss wiseman was on the roster last season played zero games so um you know they got similar depth well, and actually a name we haven't mentioned yet, we don't need to talk about that much, but I think a guy that I've liked for a long time that I think he contributes back on a two-way now, apparently didn't have any other offers, is uh, Quindary Weatherspoon. He, I thought, had a nice summer league. He's a pretty rugged on-ball defender. I really like his on-ball defense, and he's also a little stronger as well. Like, he doesn't take a lot of threes, but he actually looked like he was making them pretty well in summer league uh, also. So I, he might be a guy where, you know, they keep him on the two-way and then convert him towards the end of the season to save on on the tax but he maybe could play a little bit of that Peyton role to me as well if DiVincenzo isn't working out there or gets injured or something so they had a COVID Um, outbreak 
right around Christmas, which and Wiggins was yeah. in protocol, and they went to Phoenix and they beat the Suns without. I'm trying to remember. I think there was no Wiggins, no Draymond in that game. Yeah, and they played Witherspoon in that game, and he guarded Devin Booker and pretty, you know, decently for eight minutes. You know, it was nothing spectacular, but it was like, whoa, okay. I, I think I think he's like legitimately a very good defender. It's always just been his offense. That's yeah, been Clay during been Clay's problem. rehab. The uh, he you know he'd go down to Santa Cruz and he'd play these like scrimmages against uh, you know the lower minutes guys and they would have Witherspoon guard Clay and Clay was like so impressed with Witherspoon that he wanted like he thought he's like they they need to get him on a two way he wasn't initially on a two way last season uh, they got him on like the hardship during the COVID thing and he impressed them so much that he remains on a two way yeah but you know the problem was he's been shooting around a thirty uh, percent career yeah uh, from, I mean but, but again at this point we're league. talking about player 15 on the roster at this point um you want to get to predictions desperately um and i think the last big theme i think that i wanted to talk about is just what the west is this year compared to before i mean the the warriors i think it's actually kind of underrated in the end how much they dominated because they had those struggles with memphis in the second round like if they just never had you know if they lose that 55 point game in game five with no jaw they just lose that by 10 and then you know they take care of memphis and six but their last two rounds of the playoffs like they like they really controlled that celtics series like the celtics had no options to score against them by the end i think like a lot of people are kind of viewing that series as having been pretty close in the end i don't think it was like they blew them out on the road in game six and the celtics offense just had nothing the last three games um and and then they killed a dallas team that was really really hard to play against and also was defending really well and they scored on that really easily so I, i think they did have have an underrated run in terms of how easily they really won these series in the end but the west is way hard like it was, it was a not an easy run but an easier run than people expected you know they didn't have to play the suns Ja got hurt halfway through that memphis series so they got the clippers this year you got a which i think is very very well suited to guard them um and, and score against them and then you've also got the uh, full strength nuggets again as well um mavericks taking a step yeah. back it seems and that was their west finals yeah. opponent we'll see what and we'll see you know jaron if jaron is not going to be healthy you know that's a concern like he's probably going to miss the first half of the season now uh with this foot issue so maybe memphis will take a step back that they lost some of their depth like melton was a guy who gave them some trouble as well so we'll see whether memphis is the same threat but i think just the overall depth in the west you know phoenix isn't going anywhere in theory um although i do think that golden state i would have picked golden state to beat them yeah they're very uh, confident against that type of team in in the playoffs they were before they you know may melted down against the Mavericks uh there was even some talk yeah. internally like uh, you know as that series was getting deeper like I think you might might prefer Phoenix to win this and then you know they took care yeah. of Dallas anyways but uh you mentioned the team I think the Clippers you know it's it's, it's huge ifs on the health front but again like you know versatile switchy defensive team with with a bunch of wings and um i think full strength everything goes right for the clippers could, would be really difficult for the warriors in a playoff series yeah i think so and we'll see i mean the number one thing is just is Kawhi leonard still you know a top three top yeah. five type of player coming off the acl but if so i mean they're gonna be extreme tough and i certainly hope that series happens that would be one of i think just like an all-time awesome series but you know golden state you know as we get into kind of the regular season prediction here i mean when steph curry and draymond green play together without kelly Oubre or james wiseman on the floor they win it's pretty fucking good right i mean you mentioned the steph and pool combo 
combo. Steph and Draymond together last year, 14.8 net rating. And I, I mean, I think when this team brings it, you know, and Steph is just such so difficult for some of these teams to deal with. I, I assume that everybody's going to be playing lower minutes and all that stuff. But I think when this team has its fastball, I expect them to be one of the best teams in basketball again this year. It's just kind of a question of the health and how hard they're going to push in the regular season. Which won't be like last season, I don't believe. Um, you know, having Clay for the full season um, helps, but they won 53 last year. Uh, I, I think they'll probably sit somewhere in that range, but they're gonna like back. To, I've already seen, you know, the schedule just came out what last week, and you're just already looking like I'm oh, well, that backside of a back to back on the East Coast. Nobody's none of the main guys are gonna play that one, yeah. not either. So I think, and and you know, I mentioned it earlier, but like there's just a their hunger is stripped a bit, particularly a regular season hunger. They were really invested in the regular season last year. Oh, sure. And they just aren't going to be as much anymore. I mean, that can change if they're struggling enough through a month where you're like, hey, they need to avoid the play-in or something like that. So I think, you know, they're going to go chase, you know, a a decent amount of wins. But um, I I just think they're... And they also, again, another thing they just proved to themselves last year because they tailed off late because of injuries and stuff. Stuff, but they came out of the three seed and it wasn't a problem so again they're not yeah you know but, but again they only had home court disadvantage in one series they kind of got lucky in that respect yeah uh, you know they're they also were lucky in that they had home court over the you know anybody coming out of the east which wouldn't necessarily be the case this year it was but just think, another example and, to them and, that like they don't care about seeding uh and and now because of the play-in you know the line is six you do not want to dip below six but i and you know once you get late in the year then maybe you're like oh you don't want to see the clippers in the first round there's some maneuvering but i just don't think they're going to care that much about the regular i I think you still you still need to be a top four i I think once you you know to have and because especially if you're six like you have to beat all the three best teams in the conference and then win the finals like that's pretty fucking hard yeah well that's that's really true but everything is case by case whereas there was a point late last season you know they ended up winning like you know whatever it was like five out of their last six to hold on to the three but there was a point where they could have slipped below dallas and utah late Mm -hmm. and like okay let's say they came out of the five last year they would have been playing basically you know a similar path you know yeah you get phoenix in the second round but i think now that you take a step back we probably mostly believe they would have beat phoenix um yeah maybe although steph wasn't humming coming off the injury the way you're right yeah 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 so so i mean that's ultimately you know if they're if they're healthy i mean i I still think in the end like if i if you had to pick the most likely nba champion right now i think i would pick um now that's not saying they have a 50 percent chance i think there's probably five or six teams uh and i might even say that a healthy clippers if we know if you give me transplant 2021 playoffs Kawhi into this clippers team i probably would pick the clippers to beat them but i'm just the, the clippers have so many question marks i'd probably I, just, I can't rely on them i'd probably take boston right now personally um you know i think the brogdon thing like you know it really helped the warriors their lack boston's lack of like point guard play in that series you know like true point guard yeah play. I, I mean i i just don't think jason tatum is good enough to score against this defense at least the defense that we saw last year yeah that's um, that, that would be my that's thought. fair but, payton I mean, gary payton was big in that series though and he's not around yeah, yeah. no that that's true you know I, I think that's that's the one he's the one guy i don't think they're gonna miss porter that much i think he was good at the start of the year but i think by the end wasn't really that valuable 
valuable um you know and they can they still have plenty of picks available too like they can make a trade if they really needed to uh, as well um yeah you know i i'm i'm struggling you know i think they'll kind of be around the same place like i'm also loath to pick anybody to win more than like 53 54 games these days in the regular season maybe boston would be the one team how about phoenix in retrospect 64 last year yeah although they were they were pretty lucky in terms of their they were one of the best clutch teams of all time like they're probably more similar like a high 50 win yeah. team in terms of their point differential i mean they, yeah they only had a plus 7.4 point differential um in in the end last year so um which is not elite i mean it's by comparison like those warriors team that were really good in the last decade were over 10 um i'm going 55 I'm actually, yeah i'm going 55 what are you going yeah i was gonna go 54 um and again like considering how much time like clay and draymond missed like i think they will be a little bit this year and i actually think steph will have a better regular season this year maybe in fewer minutes uh and you know i think pool take a step forward also like they'll have clay to make up for maybe some of the defections like i think i mean what were they in offense last year like that was i think there'd be way better offense this year overall than they were last year i think that's that's the biggest thing like they did it they ended up being uh 17 on offense last year i mean how crazy is that to to think of and second on defense i don't think they'll be second on defense this year in the regular season especially playing all the young guys as much as they will and then they'll probably play steph and pool and clay together more yeah um the big stat i don't think will be as good yeah the big stat from last regular season well two of them only 11 minutes total last regular season for steph clay and draymond together yeah unbelievable and then zero minutes for their starting lineup together you know until the playoffs and then it all came together in the playoffs and you could i mean they had a 114.5 offensive rating in the playoffs last season (laughs) so um yeah some of the regular season uh, you know i guess numbers are a little skewed sure and i think it's probably in retrospect after they won and like yeah these guys knew each other well but i mean that's that's pretty incredible to have had that little continuity during the regular season and have still ended up winning with like relative aplomb uh, in the end so yeah i mean i think i think these guys are going to be and yeah you run into some of the spacing issues but i think that these guys are going to be a top certainly top 10 and definitely a top five playoff offense i think you know i'm not sure like you know brooklyn what are they going to be the hawks will probably take a step back utah is going to take a step back you know if i had to run it right now just ranking the playoff offenses they're probably number one to me. yeah i mean you know good again there's so many ifs like does brooklyn yeah, come clippers together? maybe it's the only other yeah. that you would look at um denver so yeah that's a pretty damn good playoff offense if they're they, i mean they have so many question marks too yeah denver might actually even be better like Jokic and stuff to me are the two you know best offense players game so I, I would be that that's one where they could really we haven't seen that whole denver team together yet on offense um but yeah you don't know what porter is going to be either and they also have a lot of kind of non-shooter defensive types coming off their bench that that might reduce their ability so um yeah i think these guys will be a top five offense here i think i'm going to make that prediction although i got to really go through and rank them but there's nobody that stands out to me as like oh they're clearly going to be better than, um well, it's you, just a question well you of, still have about a month and a half to gather your thoughts so <laughs> yeah that's true um so do you agree with me though would you make them the championship favorite no i i'd, uh, I'd I take mean, boston you know yeah yeah you take boston i think boston yeah. learning from that finals loss i think boston adding malcolm malcolm brogdon 
you know, the Gallinari news of the day, you know, with the torn meniscus isn't great, but since it's just a meniscus, you'll pro- you know, you'd yeah. assume. And, and, and he, he wasn't going to play. Yeah, you're right. He's not I, like, I'm not a big Brogdon guy as far as like him transforming them in the, yeah. in the play. Like, I don't think the Warriors are like scared of Malcolm. Brogdon. Yeah. I just, I just really like how Boston's built. And I, I, sure. I, I know what you're saying. Like Tatum was, well, I, I guess the bigger thing you could point to is if Rob Williams were healthy, then maybe Boston yeah. would have won the series. Yeah. That, that's probably the other, the thing you could but I, I think the Warriors, like with Pool and, and you know a Clay, like I think they could be a better offense this year. As crazy as that is to think of, um, and I'm just with no Peyton and Draymond another year and the young guys. Like I think the defense is going to take a pretty significant step. Yeah, uh, at least during the regular season, and then you know we'll see in playoffs. I'm taking. All right, out. so I went 54. You went 55. Let's get that in the old the old spreadsheet here. Uh, for the record, by the way, uh, you were 48 and I was 47 when he did the pod and i bumped it to 49 once we saw like how good pool was looking in the in the preseason but uh yeah, so we actually we weren't that far off in terms of the numbers in the regular season but obviously they were a, a much better thing than expect so uh would you pick them to get out of the west or would you go would you go clipper man i mean them against the field i'd probably take the field but if you told me i had right. to pick a winner right now i'd probably take them just because of what they just showed and you know yeah question marks about the clippers health and really like i don't love the west i you know as like a absolute like there's know. just yeah, no I mean, there's like no yeah yeah and you know there's no dominant particularly playoff team now sure phoenix go ahead and win 62 again i'm not going to believe that they're you know some playoff goliath yeah. and without that to me the warriors proved that they can handle you know t if you feel like there's a relatively even talent level like the warriors just outsmart you in the playoffs essentially so uh you would you'd take them even though like i said if you, if you gave me the field i'd take the field yeah i kind of think it's warriors and clippers uh, when healthy obviously and then everyone else like i think those are the two teams that can bring that are like good enough two-way teams i think like denver to me with Jokic at center like it's just they can be attacked and like they're just gonna have to outscore you which maybe they can do but that's not ideal deal and you know utah is done now dallas took the step back phoenix doesn't have the highest end talent you know they, they have some of the issues uh you know we'll see whether who's even on their team by then if Aiton is still around so yeah i, I think clippers and warriors and then kind of everyone else has threats but not primary threats to me all right man this is fun obviously uh at anthony v slater on twitter you can keep up with with his work at the athletic one of the best beat men and uh also does the warriors plus minus slash all 82 pod which is available for free and i'm a frequent post-game guest uh, on that but also the episodes with uh slater tim and marcus are fantastic as well so thanks again for coming on athletic nba show tuesdays tampering with sam amick and fred katz also ah thank there you, you go. thank you yeah now that's yeah that's a good pod uh, as well katz is is fantastic uh, on- and amick uh yeah i i, I, I like sam kind of is like more the host role though like i, th- yes, I feel like yes. he like sets you got you guys up to shine and uh he's i i mean let's be honest like sam Sam does not bring the same level of punter that that Fred does. All right, wrap wrap it up. (laughs) All right, we'll talk to you all again next. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. 
At Bet365, we don't do ordinary. We believe that every sport should be epic. Every goal, every game, every point, every play. From the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar. Whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply. All right, I want to welcome on another first-time guest to the program, someone whose work I've long admired. She did some stuff for 538. She's been a stalwart at Indie Cornrows for a long time. Danny was kind enough to put me in touch with her. Caitlin Cooper, how are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for finding me in my tiny corner of the internet. I appreciate that. Oh, that corner is expanding all the time, or or at least it should be, uh, to be sure. But yeah, it's uh, I'm really looking forward to talking to you because uh, you are, I would say, the greatest expert on the Pacers now. In the public sphere, uh, no one else can tell us what happens when Tyrese Halliburton leaves the floor <laughs> to make a pass uh nearly as well as you can you really get into it uh with this team and i guess i did kind of want to start with halliburton because what he did was pretty under the radar this team was tanking pretty hard although they would surely point out that they never shut down halliburton and some of the other players but it wasn't necessarily something that a lot of people including me were that focused on so once the pacers got tyrese halliburton what did he look like for them and then what are your expectations for him going forward this year as he seems to really have been designated now as the leader of this team going forward. Yeah, I think a couple things jumped off the page from his very first game that he played. He debuted against the Cavs. And right away, I think they put up close to 40 points in that first quarter, and they were really playing at an up-tempo pace by comparison to the first half of the season. He's really a guy who wants to get the ball and go, like makes or misses. He wants to, you know, he's clapping for inbound passes, wants to go the other way. And then also like the overall inclusiveness that he plays with. I I imagine if you ask his teammates that they really like to play with him because, you know, sometimes he, you know, he doesn't take a lot of bad shots. Sometimes he doesn't even take good shots. He's a very pass first player. And then also in that game, if you look at the fourth quarter, um, you can see how much it bothered him when Evan Mobley and Jared Allen were switching out. So sometimes when he sees links, like his isolation efficiency numbers are quite good. And I think that his numbers just against switches are pretty good, but there's, again, there's shots that he doesn't take. And that's kind of the main thing that I would be looking for, for him next year. When you go into the season is how much more willing is he going to be to look for his own offense with the way that this roster is set up? Because I think kind of the number one stat that you would look at for them as a team last year is what their clutch record was. And that's pre-trade and post-trade. I mean, they played four, they played 45 clutch games and their win percentage prior to the trade was 30th and their win percentage after the trade was 29th. So, you know, after the trade, that's, that's fine. Like, I think you're feeling pretty good if you go three and 11 and you're competitively losing with that bunch in some of those games. But then you would look at some of the losses that they had, like they're playing the Kings and it's an end of game possession and Tyrese is inbounding the ball to Buddy Heald against pressure and Buddy dribbles it off his leg. Or they play the Detroit Pistons twice. One of the games when Malcolm Brogdon was still available and actually played. And for like the last six minutes of the game, the offense is very much tilted and run through Malcolm Brogdon. The Pistons are switching out and it's really one and done isolations with Tyrese off the ball or they play the Oklahoma City Thunder and they get into an overtime game and Lance Stevenson goes 0 of 5 from the field and Tyrese is you know again deferring and really being inclusive with his teammates but you want him to look for his own offense and I think that that's the main thing that the Pacers have to find out with this season is can he be our number one guy can he increase what his usage is yeah that's interesting you get you brought a lot 
lot there. The transition is fascinating to me because Rick Carlisle, for years and years in Dallas, had one of the lowest transition frequency teams. And you wondered whether it was personnel and old Dirk, and then it was Luca not really wanting to run, and you know they didn't run last year either. But Rick is a guy who's liked to had more have more control over the years. He ceded some of that to Luca, but ultimately clashed with him. So this is a young team, obviously. Is Rick Carlisle going to be on board? Do you think with really trying to push the pace this year i mean if you look at their transition frequency on cleaning the glass after the trade deadline essentially still was only 23rd in the nba i'm not sure how that broke down uh with and without halberton on the floor but that that's really interesting to me to see whether like ricardo wants these guys to actually run and it's going to enable them to run right and i love this question because i've brought that up many times because it, it only inched up a bit like for the first four or five games in tyrese played i want to say that if you looked at cleaning the glass they were like at 13th and i wrote about it and i was like oh maybe this is going to change and then by the end of the season it's what you're saying they were 23rd and then his prior six teams in dallas they were all in the bottom five so he had made a comment when malcolm brogdon was coming back to play that like oh this is going to be great now we have two point guards on the floor i'm barely going to have to call anything because these are both really cerebral players they're going to be able to do stuff and i'm kind of watching the games i'm like nah, you're using a lot of hand signals there's, there's a, i know i know what the hand signals are for and and you're still calling a lot of plays so i mean like what you're saying with luca like to a degree before the trade deadline you could kind of peg some of that on Malcolm Brogdon because he likes to play at a more methodical pace but even then like they were on a road trip where they played the Pistons and the Knicks and they scored like I mean I think you guys did one of the broadcasts on this Nick game they scored like 10 points in the fourth quarter yeah and and you could see them can you know you could hear sometimes Rick Carlisle through the broadcast being very pace controlled like hold it hold it and then you could see them looking over to the bench when at times it felt like okay you, you just need to push the ball up the floor and get past what Alec Burks's full court pressure is so I definitely think that's something to watch, but at the same time, it feels organizationally, especially with what they did in the draft, that there is very much an emphasis on them wanting to upgrade the athleticism. I think that they like that aspect of Benedict Matherin in addition to his ability to be a movement shooter is that he is a guy who can really unlock his athleticism in the open floor. Kendall Brown's the same way. Like I don't think he's going to be an immediate part of the rotation, but that leads me to believe that Rick Carlisle is on board with this transformation. Now, how much that will actually play out in the numbers we will have to wait and see but it does seem like um they at least wanted to get more athletic let's get back to Halliburton before we talk about the overall look of this team which obviously is going to be substantially changed from in prior years what do you see him as do you as you look at the building of this team you know he's certainly their tentpole player as of now going forward do you feel like Tyrese Halliburton and some pretty good players uh, around him maybe one more decent draft pick this year is enough to move forward into a new era of successful Pacers basketball? Has he had the potential to be that level of a star to you? Or do you think of him as more maybe a secondary or tertiary guy on a team that's you know really going to contend for something? Yeah, I mean, not to plug my own piece, but if people do go read that pass on the or that piece on the jump passing, I think after I rewatched all those 26 games again and his 900 or whatever minutes it was, I'm totally all in on him as the point guard of the future. Like if you watch them run their same sets, 
with Malcolm Brogdon versus Tyrese Halliburton. It's like you're getting glasses for the first time. It's like, oh, that's how that's supposed to look. Like that's how somebody can actually pass people open versus passing to the open player and how much trouble they were having early on in the year. I mean, some of it was a spacing issue. I mean, they only had one person shooting above 35% prior to the trade deadline. That was Justin Holiday, um, where Malcolm Brogdon just didn't have the same spacing in the paint to always be getting the ball to Sabonis, but also just, you know, how much easier Tyrese makes it just against various different types of coverages. That being said, what I referenced before about the usage rate, like here, here's a fun question that I've come up with for you. You're, you're going to be under pressure here. Great, um, great. Tyrese, yeah, Tyrese had, according to NBA.com's usage rate, Tyrese's usage rate with the Pacers was 19.5%. So I looked back to the year 2012 at every backcourt player who made an all-star team. Because I assumed that Rajon Rondo might be one of the most recent players that had a usage rate under 20. And he actually had a usage rate over 20. But how many guards do you think over that 10-year span made an all-star team with a usage rate under 20? Chris Paul was close last year. Chris Uh, Paul is one, yes. All-star team. It's too late for Jason Kidd. Yeah, I'm trying to think of who else were like guards, pass first point guards. Yeah, I don't think I can come up with another one. Yeah, the only other ones that that I would classify as backcourt players. Kyle Lowry had a usage rate under 20 during their championship season, which kind of makes sense. Ah. They had Kawhi and Siakam. And then Steve Nash during his final season in Phoenix also was at 19. And then if we want to count Kyle Korver, I think he was an injury placement that year and he's clearly not a guard, but Kyle Korver also had a usage rate under 20. So, I mean, I think what you're asking is a question that we don't fully know the answer to yet. And I think that the Pacers have set themselves up to find out because they've mainly surrounded Tyrese with guys guys who are, I mean, he's going to have spacing all around him. I think that's one of the biggest strengths of this team headed into next year. He's going to be the person putting the primary bend in the defense. So again, like based on quotes that he's had out there in the media, it sounds like he's very much aware that he needs to be looking more for his own offense. So can he be a guy that can be, you know, a higher usage guy, be scoring closer to 20 points per game? If the Pacers can find that out, I'll, I'll be more in on him as, as the number one primary guy on a team. But they need to find that out because if it's not him, then they need to find that guy in the draft. Yeah, and we'll see. We'll talk about Mather in a, in a second, and, and whether you know he could maybe be that lead scorer. Um, but yeah, you know Halliburton. You just wonder about him. You mentioned his isolation numbers were pretty good, but also that certain players. You know, Evan Mobley is a great isolation defender, so that's not, not the end of the world if he's giving him problems. But if you had to look at just how on the floor he can create more shots for himself, where is that going to come from? Yeah, I mean, I think that's the big one because he can kind of struggle with hip and shoulder wars. So when he gets in those types of situations, he mainly looks for the step back or to create separation for a three. And that's a one way that he and Malcolm Brogdon are very different. I mean, I think that he talked about working with Drew Hanlon this summer and really working on angles and and getting his way to the basket. And I'm also adding some physical strength, which I think both things will be big for him. I think some things that the Pacers did, like, I mean, it obviously depends on the coverage. There were times where they were using more Gortat screens because I would be very curious to know if there was a way to track what the average ending distance of his drives are. Hmm. Because so much of the time it ends outside the free throw line and that's good in some respects not so good in others especially when he's looking for like the jump skimp passes and whatnot but I mean they use some Gortat screens against drop um against the switch like if he wants to beat a big something that he did late in a game against the Sixers and bead switched out to him and it didn't actually come to anything but I'm like well that's one way so he passes out 
to, I don't remember who the nearest guard was, but in, in like a boomerang action where you're going to get the ball back. And a lot of times, like when Victor Oladipo played for the Pacers, you're going to pull back out and then attack that big in space and, and force them to come at you. So instead of him dribbling right at the big and trying to get them off balance or immediately pulling into a three, he passed out of that and cut in front of Joel Embiid. So you're beating him off the pass on the boomerang and then catching it back in the lane. So like, I think that that's one movement where that's another thing that he could do against the switch where he could still be a scorer, but it's not necessarily expecting him to be able to break down, you know, the Jaron Jackson Jr. Evan Mobley class of switchable defenders. But um, some of it too is that like having Buddy Heald adjacent to him, this isn't him being a scorer, but he does command enough attention like when they played Memphis, where if he does get that switch, Jaron Jackson doesn't actually roam off into the nearest player's passing lane. So whoever's adjacent to him generally has a pretty good driving kick opportunity, which is also helpful. Yeah, you know, I when I watch Halliburton, you know, it seems like when he's in an isolation situation, like his best move that that he he likes the most, correct me if I'm wrong here, is that step back to his right, which he it seems like he and Shea Gilgis Alexander, the two guys in the league who have that set shot, step back to to their right that with a a really high arc on it. I think, you know, obviously if he can make that shot go in, that's going to open up a lot more of his game i would also say just flopping more would really help him a lot like you mentioned how he's kind of skinny and you know watch some lou williams tape because if he is getting the advantage and he's getting bumped off of his path to just accentuate that contact and his free throw rate went up a little bit when he went to indy but still pretty low for a player who's got the ball all the time and then the last thing i would point to is i think his handle just overall needs to get better like in college he's vulnerable to full court pressure he's definitely gotten better there but whether it's going left and also being able to finish left would be another thing but just to tighten up a little bit get a few more moves off the dribble you know when he was with the kings when i probably saw more of them you know they did some nice stuff to get him on the move going to his right hand but there's only so many times that you can do that and a really locked in defense can take some of those plays away a little bit so those are the three things that i would point to and that's that's a lot of stuff to do to really become that high level of scoring option um and then i guess the last thing too i could point to now i think of it is just being more of a threat moving off the ball since he is such a good shooter and has a pretty quick release to see whether you know he could add some shots that way as an off ball guy so i think there are a lot of paths for him but those all of those things involve a lot of work and maybe it's not somewhere that he's going to be able to get necessarily yeah he showed some relocation stuff late in the year that it seemed like he was focusing on getting off the ball finding the open spot and getting it right back and then you mentioned going left one of i think one of the most interesting games over the back half of the season was actually when they played the kings and it's going to sound funny because we know what the Kings defense was. Yeah. But when when the Kings came to town and played the Pacers, Davian Mitchell was very locked in to guarding Tyrese. And from the get-go, they were weakening him and then switching. Yeah. Which the, is probably the coaching what, revenge game, I call it, right? Yeah, when you, exactly. You know, hey, we've had we've had to scheme around this guy's weaknesses for the uh, entire last two years. Now we finally get to take advantage of him, right? Exactly. And that that's why it was so fascinating because like that's what I would that's exactly what method I would use if I was an opponent and I was going to guard him. So he was really going at him. And then about halfway through the game, like Tyrese didn't finish great from the field. He had 15 assists and zero turnovers, but like the Pacers were then deliberately reversing their sets, like almost always when you see like what you reference. like if they're running a double drag for Halliburton, it's going to get be for him to get,
get downhill to his right. But then they were purposely mirroring and reflecting the action so that he was get it, still being able to use the mm. screen, but getting to his left. And he was actually getting into the paint after it. They made a couple other tweaks where I was like, that's something. So I think that you bring up a good point with the, the going left thing there. Yeah. And it's hard to take away much from last year because you know, Rick Carlisle has been in this situation before where he's had a team that's maneuvering for draft position. And so, you know, he is one of the guys who really is going to subtly tweak things a lot in that way and so how much is he really holding back in that situation where they're losing a bunch of games down the end you know you can really never know the answer to that but uh let's talk now about some of the other new additions to this group and i mean we can even go back to some of the guys that they got around the the trade deadline as well but uh ben matherin had an unbelievable summer league what are you expecting uh, out of him this year yeah, I thought right away, like this was kind of the first year where I really had to focus on draft content because so often the Pacers are never a team that has a top pick. But I thought during the pre-draft process that I was pretty convinced that he would be the pick just because how much of Arizona's offense overlapped with things that Rick Carlisle prefers to do. And I thought that showed up pretty early in summer league as well. Like one of the elevator sets they ran was literally something that Arizona ran. Hmm. But um, yeah, I think that he showed he showed stuff as a three-level score that I wasn't completely expecting like I still like him most coming off of handoffs and like coming out of you know wide actions where he can catch the ball in the move with his defender trailing but he actually did a few things that I thought were telling where he was directing screeners and you know if he had an under he was automatically shooting against it and pulling from deep where I felt like at Arizona he was a little bit better off the catch than he was necessarily off the dribble and then also just getting into the paint he scored at all three levels like there were a couple games where he snaked his dribble and got into the lane and that was kind of one of the main drawbacks was his handle and I know that summer league isn't everything but he had some nice defensive stands like I had so few things to nitpick about him and the few things that I did have to nitpick about him I'm like do I really care about this if Tyrese is out there playing with him probably not no and I will second all that and I can add I thought he got pretty good separation and isolation the few times he went that route as well it hit some step backs and you know obviously that's relying over what it was a three four game sample on the shot going in as much but certainly did everything that you could have hoped he would do in that summer league so you think he's the starting two yeah i think that yeah i think he's already penciled into the starting lineup that's my impression so then i think it's going to yeah. be more a battle between duarte and buddy healed on what you want to do there if buddy's still on the roster yeah so so basically at the three so i mean that i i was going to ask who the starting three would be uh maybe it'd be more accurate to ask who the starting third guard <laughs> is going to be uh because they don't necessarily have uh, anyone who's particularly well suited to defend that position uh uh, so yeah, I mean, healed versus uh, Chris Duarte. I mean, why don't you bring people up to date briefly just on, on what Duarte's rookie year looked like? Uh, so you know, he was in and out of the lineup. He had that toe issue towards the end of the year as well. He's going to be 25 this year, so he's kind of you, you hope that he's a relatively fully formed player with some room to improve. But what did you make of his rookie season? Yeah, I thought he had a lot of interruptions. I, th- I mean, he obviously started out very strong in the season opener when he had his, you know, I think he had 27 against Charlotte, and then pretty soon into that I kind of started noticing they were on a road trip and you could see him rubbing his shoulder a lot and he kept playing through it but you could see there were struggles there and then he ended up sitting out with the shoulder and then I think he had an ankle problem for a bit and then he had he was out for a COVID absence and then the birth of his child and then when he came back again they went on the west coast road trip where I think was probably his most impressive stretch of games he played against the Clippers and against the Warriors and I felt that was his most well-rounded stretch I mean that that was mainly 
with like replacement players out there playing right yeah. ahead of the trade deadline. But, you know, you could see him against the Warriors. He just looked very, I mean, I think that the main thing about him is just how poised and under control he generally is. But, you know, they were blitzing him pretty high out on the court and he was making good decisions out of that. Um, I think he's pretty, one thing that I really like about him is that he maintains his dribble, that he can put the ball on the floor and then he can use a probe dribble and kind of reverse out of that and hit those, you know, baseline twos sometimes if he doesn't get anything there. He can dribble pass and shoot. I think my main sticking point with him is that he doesn't, he still needs to master the nuance of when to do each of those three things. So like sometimes I'd like to see him play off of two feet more a little bit in the paint. He's not great at mid- adjusting midair. What Tyrese can do as a jump passer, I don't think Duarte should always be doing as a jump passer. He has more of a tendency to stare down his targets. But I think overall, like if you saw how they used him some defensively, he was the guy that they would put out there and have, you know, pressuring 94 feet. Yeah. At certain, that that at was going to be my biggest yeah. question about him because I, I was not able to lock into his defense as, as much on a game-to-game basis uh, as you for just what, what you expect him to be defensively. Yeah, I mean, I think he was probably one of their top four defenders last year, which isn't saying a ton because they weren't a good <laughs> defensive team. But like, you know, if they played the Suns, he'd be the guy that would be pressuring Chris Paul 94 feet. And also, like, I think that his instincts away from the ball are pretty keen, um, especially if he's like a nail defender. He can move over and, and defend in that type of a situation pretty well. So I think that he definitely has an edge over Buddy in that regard. And if you're looking at a closing lineup, I could definitely see a circumstance where Rick Carlisle might lean on Chris more than Buddy in those situations just because he's going to give you more two-way value. But my guess is that they'll probably lean with Buddy as the starter just in part because it might be better for Buddy's trade value for them to lean on him as the starter. Yeah, and he's uh, always uh, has agitated in situations where he hasn't started uh, before in, in his career as well. But yeah, I mean, that is a pretty tough defensive trio at the one through three i I mean frankly probably even if you are starting duarte because it seems like he's a little undersized to guard opposing threes ideally although there's not necessarily anyone else to do it but then if you go buddy halliburton you know who hasn't particularly impressed me with his individual defense he's better off ball and then uh, mathurin i think has tools but he's also just a rookie Uh, that's going to be i think no matter what direction they go uh, starting uh, among those four guys it's going to be tough i think for them to keep guys in front of the perimeter yeah and that was kind of the main issue for main theme throughout all of their roster iterations last year they just don't really have guys that are stout on ball defenders and and not having anybody that's wing sized is kind of a problem as well like you mentioned so i agree with you i think that tyrese's skills kind of like duarte i think both of them are kind of more ideal off ball defenders that that's where you're going to see most of their value what tyrese does again kind of like duarte with his skills anticipating and also his ability to close out and still get back into plays after he's closed out um but same same issue like they don't exactly have a great point of attack defender where you could be like well we can play that guy and then we can shift both of them over is you know that's kind of what they've had to do with brogdon the last few years because his on-ball defensive positioning just isn't great he really struggles with quicker guards so they've had to move him over to the wing and you know they just don't have point of attack defenders i mean there's a lot of holes for them defensively overall yeah no it seems that way and i have some hope maybe that aaron neesmith can contribute in that regard despite his utter frenetic playing with the Celtics like he was able to at least show some playmaking ability defensively and I'm hopeful that he'll just get enough reps to where the game can kind of slow finally at least slow down for him a little bit you know clearly he was going to be their at best their fifth perimeter player uh, among those that you mentioned um quickly here while we're on the backcourt how do you see the rest of the backcourt situation playing out I mean we've got that top four they've got TJ McConnell as well they've got Neesmith and Kendall Braun I mean maybe he's a three probably 
probably more of a four with his outside ability at this point but how do you see that group shaking out in terms of the backcourt rotation right i would look at the second unit and anticipate it's probably going to be tj mcconnell and chris duarte probably because in part like chris duarte is going to get more opportunity off the bench than necessarily he will with the starters especially if they're like i said going to try to still move buddy and use that somewhat as a showcase to potentially flip him later if they don't flip him before the before the season starts. And then I kind of think that Aaron Neesmith's probably going to get the nod. I mean, that will probably be a camp battle at backup three to a degree. Um, I, I still don't really like O'Shea Brissett as a three as much as a four, Yeah, but that would kind of be the main competition there for him at the backup three spot. I think that Neesmith is probably their, I mean, this is going to sound like I'm really going out on a limb here. He's probably their best on-ball defender as much as he can go into crash mode and kind of just be all over the place. But, you know, he's going to have to rein in the fouls. Um, he didn't have a super impressive summer league, and I, I don't think that's entirely on him. Obviously, the Malcolm Brogdon physical um, kind of dragged into what summer league was. He wasn't at the mini camp, and then he kind of got thrown out there midway through in the games. Yeah. I'm not sure there was a lot of upside there for him. He didn't shoot the ball particularly well. Anything off of two dribbles was fairly dicey, and then I think he had like 11 turnovers to two assists, and in two of the games, he would have fouled out if it was a regular regulation game. So <laughs> like, it, it just it wasn't a great showing, but there were moments of, of, okay, they don't really have anybody else on the roster who could guard out on the perimeter to that degree if he at least, if he doesn't finish the possession with a foul. But I'm kind of anticipating that Kendall Brown might be on a two-way deal. They haven't announced what they've signed him to yet. And I agree with you. I think he's more of a four. And then Andrew Nemhard, as long as TJ McConnell's on the roster, is probably going to be the third string point guard, I would assume. So what did you make of the announcement, reporting, I don't know how you're going to characterize it, that Jalen Smith not only was recent signing but with i think well carlisle even said this was it carly who said that jalen smith is going to start for them at the four yeah he called them quote the starting power forward not even just the starting four, the starting power forward hmm. So um, I thought it was a little bit curious. I mean, obviously for him to choose to resign with the Pacers, I guess that there was some promise of a degree of opportunity um, where he thought that, you know, if I can come back and play, maybe I can dip back out and get, you know, rather he, he used Jalen himself, used the terms like I wasn't valuing instant gratification hmm. that, you know, the opportunity to be able to get the playing time and have himself, you know, have a bigger role than what he had in the past. I think that I personally still see him as a five who can play the four rather than a four who can sometimes play the five. But he shot the ball really well for like the first eight games that he came over after the trade deadline. I think he shot close to 40% over like his first seven or eight games. And then after that, it kind of tapered back to his career level at 32%. There was little moments throughout the back end of those, you know, 26 games though, where it's like, oh, I didn't know he could make a trailer three or oh, I didn't know he could cut into the corner and make a baseline shot or, you know, little stuff like that that kind of got your attention where you definitely wanted to see more. And at Tory Craig money, you're probably like, yeah, like that makes sense. And I guess they have other options. Like if they just don't like how he and Miles look at the four and the five, you know, they can flex it out and potentially play, you know, Terry Taylor there, play O'Shea Brissett there um, or make a different choice. But I, I was, I was surprised. I don't necessarily see him as a four. I don't know that I necessarily can come up with a lot of things that I would categorize as, you know, them finally having a power forward with regards to Jalen Smith, even though I did like a lot of the stuff that he did over the back end of the season. Yeah. You know, I think maybe the thought is we're, 
we're going to be so small in the perimeter anyway that having two shot blockers will kind of go this Cavs boston model and see if we, we can just get more length around the rim and survive defensively that way maybe maybe that's some of the thinking there and i think he's talented you know to get that two plus one they paid him basically the most that they could over those three years because he'd had that third year option decline by phoenix so i think it's he's worth a shot you know it's not like they have any world beaters at that position either so miles i'm guessing the assumption is that he's healthy as of now that he's going to come back we'll see how long he is for this team and you know it seems he's been on the trade block forever uh and but they also could in theory extend him if they if they wanted to do that um and so maybe a, a before we talk more about how this season is going to go what is the point of this season for the pacers like what are they trying to accomplish here are they trying to win as many games as possible is this more of a developmental season i mean the history of the franchise has been that they generally try to win as many games as they can unless they suffer a terrible start to the year like they did last year so are they kind of kind of in development mode or are they really going to try and go balls to the wall to get into the play-in mix this year i kind of think that would be a mistake i think that i think that the goal should be competitive losing <laughs> and <laughs> and figuring out like what what we discussed with tyrese halliburton what you have in him and if and finding your number one option because when we were talking about that clutch time before i don't know how many people really noticed the quote i think that jared weiss at the athletic wrote the story about miles turner and and what got most of the attention was miles turner saying that you know i they only view me as a glorified role player here but within that story um jared had a quote from kevin pritchard where he said at some point in time we've got to figure out how to manufacture that real star we had it with paul george he had an it factor and so did victor and so we're trying to yeah. get that well that That's was the when biggest sabonis challenge. was still on the team right 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 so i i'm confident that that was probably pretty touchy with sabonis but kevin later came out and qualified on twitter and said hey i was interviewed for a very long time i i didn't mean to use the word star there we need to find somebody that can help us in clutch time so while I think that like what I said before about like the game against Sacramento, Detroit, OKC, you're not necessarily mad that a young Pacer team is, is losing those competitive games. But are you losing with Tyrese going down firing? And if not, like finding who that guy is for this franchise. So if it's not Tyrese, then I think that you probably, to put it bluntly, need to lose enough games so that you can find that guy in next year's draft. Yeah. And so I think they'll probably come out like a lot of these teams do trying trying to win in the beginning and, you know, especially try to establish a competitive culture. And, you know, they will have good competition for some of these spots, particularly in the backcourt and, and in the backup front court with the likes of Jackson and uh, Smith. Uh, as well so i I think that'd be good but perhaps they can just have exactly what you're talking about take place simply by trading turner and heel i mean if they trade turner like they're just they're going to be one of the worst defense in the league like there's just no no two ways about that i would say and so then the the losing will kind of take care of itself um but for right now he is on the team and so where is he as a player at this point you know given he only played 42 games last year he hasn't finished the last two seasons healthy but when he's been on the floor how has he been right so i think that the standard by which i'm gonna measure him is gonna adjust because he's switching positions so yeah um i would probably have disagreed with some of what he said with regards to the glorified role player stuff obviously you can go on nba.com and look at what his touches were in the front court and look at what his involvement is and see like okay yeah that's nowhere close to what it's been for sabonis but at the same time i can probably point to spots in every single game and when i did write a piece about them going after deandre ayton and why i thought i was fairly bullish on that is I think that there are spots where Miles could have been 
doing more with the role that he had. Um, Rick Carlisle's known for calling plays, but they also do a lot of flow game. And there was there's there's room for players to make reads within that. And I think that my main frustration with Miles over his seven year career is that he's just he really still struggles to find his own usage. So like to to describe a play, like they'd be playing the Cavs and they're running like, you know, pick and rolls on both sides where um, the, the Mavericks would run this as well. So like imagine that Tyrese comes off an Iverson screen and maybe Malcolm Brogdon's out there. Malcolm throws it to Tyrese on the Iverson and then it's a boomerang action to immediately throw it off Malcolm Brogdon and come off that pick. Yeah. Well, you know, Tyrese would be getting a dummy screen over there. It doesn't mean that you can't use that if, if depending upon how the defense reacts. So um, they're playing clean. Cleveland. And in this game, Brogdon and Tyrese aren't even available. It was like Kiefer Sykes and Dwayne Washington Jr. Miles gets a switch there and he's just automatically pointing for Dwayne Washington to reverse it, which in defense of Miles, that is the choreography. That is what the play dictates for you to do. But he doesn't recognize, hey, the defense is giving me a shot here. All I have to do is use a quick swim move in front of Lamar Stevens and I'm getting a shot right at the front of the rim. Or there'd be times where they're playing the Brooklyn Nets and Sabonis is literally getting triple teamed and he's standing at the opposite wing and all he needs to do is 45 cut into the lane and he's getting a dunk and instead he catches it doesn't shoot and then reverses it to the top of the key so he's somebody that I think a lot of times probably the way that Turner and Sabonis got seen is actually the reverse of how I would interpret them like yes you don't have to run a lot of plays for miles he can stand on the periphery of the action but teams don't necessarily guard him as a credible shooter and for him to be involved and recognize what he needs to do he kind of needs to have plays run for him. So now that he's out of that role and he is playing back at the five spot, I think I'm going to be looking at it more, not so much, you know, can you knock down shots outside of that where teams might credibly guard you, but how much will he be willing to roll on these screens? Because I think that that's going to be pretty important in pairing with Tyrese, which is why I would have liked the Pacers preferred Aiton, because I just think he's going to pair better with a play finisher and somebody who can roll to the basket. And I know that Aiton has issues, you know, consistently playing with force, which is also a criticism of Miles. But Miles in his career has never rolled on more than 50% of his screens. And that includes before Sabonis even got there. So um, I don't think that I'm to the point where it's like, oh, he's playing at the five and all this is going to change. I do think that there's a lot of stars aligning for him. He's never played with a point guard, the caliber of Tyrese. And you could see a lot of the bigs on the roster, Goga, Ijax, Jalen, Terry Taylor, all had better two-point percentages playing with Tyrese than without Tyrese. Um, You know, Rick Carlisle is a more creative offensive coach than what was the case the last time he played at the five with Nate McMillan. So I see what people are getting at there. But I do think that some of this and why we haven't seen an uptick in production for Miles falls with Miles. Yeah, I think that's a, a reasonable criticism, although I think it, his he probably wouldn't agree with you. <laughs> but No, I don't think I, he would agree with me. But uh, yeah, I, I think that's fair. And you know, there are these flashes, particularly as a, a guy attacking off the catch against a closeout where he actually shows a little bit more ability to get to the basket off the dribble than a lot of people would expect. And every once in a while, if he really gets ahead of steam, he'll incorporate just some massive dunks i mean i think he had one in the toronto series his rookie year and there's one i want to say it was against the knicks last year where he just absolutely destroyed some poor sap 
top uh, underneath but you know he's got to really get ahead of steam up there and we just we haven't really seen him even as like much a contested finisher inside on rolls to the basket so i just i have no idea whether he can do that type of stuff or not i mean he does have kind of a high base you could see him getting knocked off balance a little bit on some of those plays so i'm gonna guess he's not gonna be some elite role man finisher but again we haven't really seen that with a you know a reasonable amount of spacing around him which hopefully they can at least provide this year and then defensively quickly you know is he a guy who's still like do you view him as like a really high impact defender at the five position yeah i mean just to hop back on the one thing you said there i do think that that's a good i do think that that's a good point when you're talking about the roles and and not having a huge sample size of it because the one thing that has changed for him at the five or might potentially depending upon how jalen shoots the ball is like even the last time when he was starting at the five and thad was the four there would be a lot of games where he was rarely checked by the five so like they would go to utah and rudy gobert would guard thad and he would get you know checked by boyan bogdanovich or they would go to philadelphia and he would get checked by ben simmons and that would really marginalize him outside the offense so if he is getting guarded more consistently by fives i think that's something and he did have a 30 point game against the rockets um when he was starting at the five and Sabonis was out with an injury. But what you're saying is true. Like we really haven't seen him with a lot of contested roles. Cause if you go back and watch those minutes, like it, it was a very sad performance from Christian Wood defensively in that game. And, oh, and Houston oh, had very, oh, really? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, I genuinely think like, I'll, I, I won't be too extreme here, but I do think that that was probably the worst defensive performance that I've seen from a big this year. Um, yeah. And not well, just well, you didn't watch him against with... Carl Anthony Towns, maybe. <laughs> yeah. That, that but, was, up there too but yeah yeah but i mean they they weren't bringing guys over to tag miles at all they were blitzing karis and they were just letting him go and then when he caught it in the post they weren't they were just letting the guard guard him but um defensively i still think he can be really impactful there i think that he was probably down a little bit this year from where what level he was at the prior season especially because so much of nate bjorkren's system was just predicated on yeah we funnel everything to miles turner um and and that all obviously boosted his block numbers to a degree because i think that they gave up like the highest room frequency in the NBA and they were just expecting miles to depress that. Um, I think one of my quibbles with him would be that sometimes he can be a little bit too straight up and down and he likes to bait drivers. So instead of sometimes like you could step up and stop that drive, he likes to let them get around and then try to block from behind, which can sometimes lead to like probe dribbles and then kick out corner threes. But I mean, that's a very minor thing. I think he's still pretty adaptable defensively. Like I don't want to play an entire game with him in a hedge scheme or him playing at a, up at the level, but the Pacers went through a lot of defensive reinventions this year. And there are times where he can step up and be, you know, malleable in that regard. I don't think he's as switchy as somebody like, you know, Evan Mobley or Jaron Jackson, but you know, he can hold up sometimes in a late clock situation, though. I don't think he was quite as good in that regard as what he was um, the prior two seasons. But I mean, I still think he's a very impactful rim protector. I think he's one of the best, uh, if not the best shot blockers in the NBA. So um, if there was a team that was going to trade for miles, I think that they wouldn't be disappointed in him as a defender. So anything that really sticks out to you that we haven't talked about yet, as far as you know, what Rick Carlisle did last year, what they might do this year uh, on either side of the ball for people who aren't as regular a Pacers watchers, what they're doing scheme wise. Yeah. I mean, I think my biggest question is just them defensively as a whole. Um, if people haven't been watching the last two seasons, like just to give a brief history lesson, like they're playing under Nate McMillan and, and with the Dan Burke scheme, that's a very conservative drop scheme funnel middle you know they 
they forced turnovers as a product of the system, not as the purpose of the system. They were pretty cleanly in terms of keeping control of fouls, but then they would get into the playoff series and like the last two playoff series they were in, for instance, they played Boston. They kind of wanted to come out and surprise. So they went to switching and they hadn't done it basically the whole year. Mm -hmm. And then they needed to hedge against Kyrie and you could see how many hiccups they had because that's kind of the first time you're doing it. And there is an element of surprise to that, but eventually the element of surprise wears off and it can kind of be evident that, oh, you don't really know how to do this. And then in the Heat series, I felt when they were in the bubble that there was a lot of times where they needed to be switching some of the handoffs and other stuff that Miami was doing and and they weren't even making that adjustment. So then they go to the Nate Bjorkren system and while they were a top six defense and I didn't feel like they needed to completely reinvent the wheel, they're playing a lot of underbaked zone coverages where it quite frankly looked like they had never practiced playing box and one and triangle and two and a lot of the ways that they were deploying it didn't always make sense to me. And then they're playing these hyper-aggressive coverages and, and again, funneling everything to miles. But, you know, we go over every single screen, no matter who the opponent is, and it's very much on autopilot. And I think that Rick Carlisle looked at all of that and realized like, hey, it didn't really make a whole lot of sense for that team last year to be expecting that Sabonis was going to, you know, depress the field goal percentage at the rim to the degree that that uh, Miles Turner was going to be. It also didn't make a lot of sense that Sabonis was leading the NBA in distance traveled um, in terms of miles on defense and that, you know, we don't really need to go over on screens against Russell Westbrook. And, you know, in, in Bjorkman's defense, they were a little bit more prepared if they needed to do other things in the playoffs, but you also need to be able to get to the playoffs. So yeah. Rick Carlisle enters this season and he's a lot more flexible with it. So very early in the year, you could see that they're playing Sabonis at or above the level and deterring that action from the rim when he was at the five, but they still like what we mentioned. They don't have point of attack defenders. They don't have on ball perimeter defenders. They're using miles more in a drop. Meanwhile, like every big on their roster needs to play a different pick and roll coverage. Isaiah Jackson needs to be a switch big and they didn't really have the pieces to be supporting all these things until midway through the season. They're basically like an at the level or hedge scheme team by the time the COVID situation occurs. Then when they get to the trade deadline and get out of it, they kind of morphed into being a completely switch team almost with a few exceptions because I think that was just the easier thing for them to do. Like when your whole roster's yeah. reinvented and it's young guys, I think it was just easier on the fly to be like, hey, we're just going to switch stuff because we don't have time to implement a new defense. So to be honest with you, headed into next year, I really have no inclination for what type of defense that they will implement when the season starts. But I know that for me personally, I'm not expecting this to be you know, an elite defensive team or even a top 15 defensive team. But I just want to have a better sense of what are you trying to accomplish on that end of the floor? What is your identity? What are you willing to live with? Because... I don't, I don't have an answer to that question from last season. It was constantly evolving and changing. And in some ways that was good because I saw that coaching staff make more in-game adjustments than probably the prior two combined, but they never were imposing what they actually were on any other team, at least not to my eye. Yeah. And it's tough when you don't necessarily have the personnel. And I think, you know, Turner, I'm, I'm very interested to see if they can defend competently when he's on the floor. I think that would be a, a very good indicator for how good he is. Um, but yeah, they don't have much else when you consider the youth. And, you know, maybe if the between Smith and Jackson and Turner, if you could play two of those guys at the same time and maybe you compromise yeah. your spacing on offense, but maybe you can get enough rim protection that that can at least be something that can help you defensively. And I think that'll be big because if you look at their numbers from every single big at solo five, they gave up at least 114 points per possession. And it didn't matter which one of them was out there. Hmm. So like even in miles of solo minutes, they gave up 117.8, which that was only like 480 minutes. And some of that 
that was really noisy because opponents shot pretty well on above the break threes. But I think what you're pointing out is true. Like they did do more switching in general than probably the prior two seasons. So if you have, you know, Miles getting called out to switch out, then he's no longer back there to protect. And they don't exactly have a lot of lengthy wings to make up, you know, with lateral size to cover up for that. And their numbers defensively, like with Turner and Sabonis at the same time, or Jalen or Ajax at the same time, were quite a bit better. And also probably because of the rebounding as well. Like, I mean, they they were not a good defensive rebounding team, especially after the trade deadline. So um, having somebody else out there, Jalen was probably their most impactful defensive rebounder. So when they have two bigs out there, they weren't giving up as many second chance opportunities. Yeah, that's always been a, another criticism of, of Turner playing with more of a stretch four. He's usually not going to be a great rebounder either. Uh, I mean, I think he's gotten a little bit better as a defensive rebounder, but he's still uh, you know, not elite in that area compared to a lot of centers. Any other strengths you can point to for this team that they're going to be relying on a, on a night-to-night basis to win whatever games they're actually going to be able to win this year? Yeah, I mean, I think if I was pointing at their two main strengths, I would look number one at the spacing. Because like what I referenced before, I mean, there was a game when they were in Phoenix at the end of a game where Chris Paul literally looked over at their bench, the Pacers bench, and said they can't effing shoot back up. Yeah. Um, like they just, there was so much of the time where you were just seeing, you know, two guys or, or multiple guys pulled in towards the bonus. They can't make the pass into the middle of the floor and then they don't have guys who can knock down the open perimeter shots so you can see a pretty big difference like one possession that i like to point out a lot is when the trade after the trade deadline you know they have tyrese coming off a double drag and now buddy heald's the first screener isaiah jackson's the second screener and they have chris duarte in the weak side corner now compare that in your head to what you imagine it looked like when it was Turner is the first screener. So bonus is the second screener and TJ McConnell in the weak side corner. Like just automatically you could see how much more space they have, especially when buddy can pull from, you know, 25 to 30 feet. That tagger's foot is no longer one foot in the paint. He's literally, you know, standing on the three point line. So that, that makes things a lot different. And now they're adding in Benedict Matherin. They have, you know, I think they have probably six guys who finished the season last year shooting above 35% instead of just Justin, which was the case before. And you could see them doing a lot of stuff in summer league, which the prior year, things that they ran in summer league in Vegas didn't stay in Vegas. They actually implemented that with the Pacers team. So I think it will again, where they were running like mover blocker actions between Benedict and Chris at the same time, like continuous flares and pins with the two of them. And then also like, I think something that I've noticed across more teams than just the Pacers is like so many teams are running Spain action now that it feels like teams are getting a little bit trickier with how they're using the stack screener. So there were times with the Pacers where, you know, they would create a single high side bump with Benedict Matherin where Chris Duarte would be like faking that he was going to be the stack screener in Spain and then go off the opposite direction off an exit screen. So I think that you're going to see a lot of stuff with them using multiple movement shooters at one time. And I think that that can be really interesting. I think spacing will be their number one strength and then also just their overall athleticism because there was times in summer league where they had guys making, you know, positioning mistakes defensively. Like, you know, Kendall Brown is moving to top lock before the bigs even in position to protect the rim. And he's athletic enough where he can still use his recovery speed to get back and block a shot. And that just wasn't the case for what the prior iteration of this roster is. Like another thing that I like to bring up just from the athleticism standpoint is that Isaiah Jackson completed more alley-oop dunks last year and his like 500 minutes than the prior two Pacer teams combined and more (laughs) than any Pacer team since 2012-13 and he completed 19 alley-oops over yeah. the back end of the season well, and having Halliburton helps with that too he's got that exactly that attack along the right lane line where 
he'll either do a floater or the fake floater alley-oop uh as well that that works really well so those yeah i think the combinations that carlisle is gonna have to go to are gonna be interesting because you do have those four guys we mentioned it'd be their primary perimeter guys but then when you bring in mcconnell as i've said before he kind of mcconnellizes your whole team because as you just referenced he can't shoot at all he needs to be on the ball but he does some good things on the ball too as far as boosting the pace probing around he can hit that mid-ranger a little bit but i think if you're gonna play with tj then you need to have a group where you've got shooting at the four. I mean, I guess it was O'Shea Brissett be their best shooter at the four, I guess. Uh, I think he actually was their best corner shooter last year. Yeah. I think he's, yeah. Because Jalen and Miles both shoot the ball better above the break than they do from the corners. Like, I think O'Shea shot probably like 37% from the corner. Yeah. So I, I think, because there are going to be a lot of times to me where I think, it was particularly before a possible Turner trade, where, you know, Smith and Jackson are going to be some of your main fours. Like, that's not really going to work with tj i don't think and you know we'll see where daniel tice fits in uh, as well you know maybe after a turner trade he'll play more but he, he's still a competent backup big as well uh so i i think but then when you've got halliburton matherin and healed all on the floor three of those four main perimeter guys we mentioned now you can get away with maybe less shooting uh, at the four and try to get some more defense around the room so i think there are some combinations where in the aggregate they can get all of the ratings bars as high as they need to be but there's still going to be specific personnel weaknesses within those that can be attacked you know on an individual basis yeah because i mean one thing that stood out too early in the season when they were losing some of the clutch games and not to put all this on tj because i certainly don't think it was but you know they'd play like an overtime game against the wizards or other games and because karis and tj warren were out he would get thrown into closing lineups And there was just so much of the time to me where I never understood, like, if he's going to be in your closing lineup, then let him run the offense because they would constantly be moving him off ball into the corners. And I I know that the coaching staff has worked with him on his shot and is trying to get him more comfortable shooting the ball. And and that was true. Even when he came back from the wrist injury, he took several threes in the last couple of games with Tyrese Halliburton. But it's like, you know, what what degree is he going to have to shoot that at for any team to actually care? Because his release is still so slow. Like, you can still help way off of him and I, I never completely understood how willing they've been to use him as an off-ball guy especially in late game situations but um yeah I think overall I, I think they can still finagle lineups where they're going to have um, quite a bit of spacing because even if Isaiah Jackson's out there at the four, I don't think they'll be using him offensively as a four. My guess is he'll be the roller and they'll be spacing Miles out. And, you know, <laughs> that's a whole nother topic, yeah, which that's... I'm sure Miles is thrilled with, with that particular yeah. idea that Isaiah Jackson would be the main screener. But I do think Isaiah Jackson's going to command more respect in terms of his vertical spacing than what Miles is going to as a roller. So um, yeah. maybe that'll open another can of worms to a degree any other weaknesses we haven't talked about yet before we get into predictions here uh well yeah i mean i think that two two opponents that they got absolutely wrecked by over the back 26 games of the year memphis and toronto and i don't think that that was just coincidental so um after the trade deadline they ranked 25th in opponent offensive rebounding rate and they were dead last in transition points allowed per 100 transition plays so that's a pretty bad combination against the memphis grizzlies and also against the toronto raptors who aren't necessarily the most efficient transition team but really pile on how much they play in transition i think that those are the top two most frequent transition playing teams so i'm kind of curious to know which way the pacers are going to attack that because i still think that rebounding is going to be some degree of a weakness for them even if they are playing Jalen and Miles together 
So they were a good offensive rebounding team themselves. And I think that if you look at just their fast break points against their opponent, fast break points against their second chance points, they probably were slightly ahead in second chance points. But there were times for me where I felt like they were sending too many guys to the glass and that was really impacting what was already bad transition defense for them. So like just to describe another situation, like they play Boston, Tyrese attacks baseline, Terry Taylor's in the corner. He passes it to Terry in the right corner. And for whatever reason, like Buddy Heald will come from the left wing all the way down to the right short corner trying to get a rebound that in all likelihood is not going to ricochet strong side (laughs) back to the corner. And then, you know, Terry Taylor being the shooter ends up being the first guy back against the Jason Tatum fast break where the entire Pacer team is just flattened out on the baseline. So I think that there's stuff that they do where, you know, they don't often win like the first three steps when they're getting back in transition defense. They they have stuff there where they need to minimize some of the extra like, okay, quit hanging around on the rebound or, you know, quit trying to steal the ball on a passing lane, but also like that type of floor balance stuff where ideally, you know, Buddy would be lifting to the top of the key and actually getting back on defense. So um, I think that battle between can they keep guys off of the glass and if they can't, are they going to keep hunting second chance opportunities to this degree themselves against how bad their transition defense was last season um, is definitely something to watch. Because like I said, I don't think it's coincidental that they lost by 40 points twice to the Memphis Grizzlies without John Morant, who admittedly were a good team last year, even when John didn't play and also lost by 40 to the Toronto Raptors up in Toronto. It's kind of a lethal combination for them. So before we do predictions, any other just major observations that you have about this team or things you're going to be focusing on this year that we haven't had a chance to get to yet no other than just the ideal topic about you know them not having any wings that's pretty much the only other thing that i would bring up is that they're very heavy on having a lot of centers and a lot of six foot six and under guards so i'm going to be curious to see how they balance that out yeah Uh, what's your opinion real quickly of of o'shea percent we haven't talked about him much i thought he actually saved them two years ago to actually even make uh, the play in in the end uh and at least win that one playing game um you know i was hopeful that he could be better it seemed like he was largely an afterthought last year um but you know i think he's a guy he's pretty athletic he can shoot okay like he's not totally overwhelmed defending on the perimeter so i i felt like he was a guy who might be able to really like break out and have a substantial career but it doesn't seem after last year like he's on that track as much yeah i think he's very resourceful is the way that i would describe him he might be like he doesn't finish well on cuts that's kind of the main thing holding him back in general is his finishing hmm. Um, he, he takes off way too far from the basket, does not get a lot of elevation off one foot. And then like pretty much everything turns into like a mid range hanging bank shot instead of a layup. So if he does see closeouts, that's a little bit of a problem for him, but he's a very resourceful cutter. Um, somebody that like, if you're seeing switches, he's very good at like slipping a flare screen out of that, or, you know, really, he doesn't spoil the spacing. He knows when to cut at the 45 to, you know, potentially remove or attack tags in that way as well. Like it's not always going to be for him to get a shot, but he will be a somebody who creates like what I would call a cut assist. Um, but yeah, he was out of the rotation very early in the season, which was a little bit strange to me. And then obviously after the trade deadline happens, he was starting quite a few games. Um, I think his cutting worked pretty well with Tyrese in a lot of situations. I think defensively, I would compare him to a very like diet version of Robert Covington and that he's not necessarily great holding up on the perimeter or in the post. But if you need somebody to slide sideline to sideline and provide help, I think that that's probably his biggest Mm -hmm. strength as a defender. 
Um, but, and, and two, like I said before, I see him as more of a four than a three. And there was times right. where they were needing him to play at the three. So like a massive two game sample size that I would point to is the two games they played against Boston where, and the first one, I, he had like 25 points, made like six threes. He's drawing the Robert Williams assignment as the lower usage wing. And he really took advantage of that and made those shots when, you know, he's playing off of him. Also saw some of Daniel Tice at the four and he was able to beat him off the dribble, actually get and finish at the rim when he's being defended by by a bigger four versus they go up to Boston and the Pacers started Terry Taylor and Goga in that game and then started O'Shea at the three. He's being defended almost exclusively by Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum. And that was a very different outcome for him. Yeah. So I feel like for him personally and getting minutes this year, there's probably going to be somewhat of a battle for him with Terry Taylor at the backup four spot. And, you know, and, and then, you know, if you're playing Isaiah Jackson, you're probably going to lean toward O'Shea because, you know, Terry Taylor is more of, you know, the very quirky, fun six foot five role man. And, you know, I think that Terry Taylor showed quite a bit in summer league as well, but just from a fit perspective, you'd probably lean O'Shea there. Yeah. Well, looking at some of these finishing numbers, so 58% around the rim and then under well under 30% on twos away from the rim. And that actually comprised about 20% of his shots. So that's despite shooting 35% from three on almost half his shots, you know, he still was relatively inefficient offensively last year, but he's also only 23. He'll, he'll be an interesting guy. He'll be an unrestricted free agent uh, after this year, but I think he's someone's the Pacers should try to retain maybe uh, on the cheap uh, at this point in time. It's not like they have a, a lot of commitments going forward. So uh, before we get to predictions, I it is incumbent upon me to look at last year's predictions, me and Jay Michael, and uh, I predicted 45 wins for this team. That was not correct, but but I was smart enough to lower my prediction from 45 to 44 when I found out about uh, TJ Warren potentially being injured at the start <laughs> of the year. So so I at least I at least started moving in the right direction uh, before before the season started but um yeah i'm this is a really hard team to predict this year just because of the trade aspect i mean i think if they if miles turner and maybe to a lesser extent buddy healed are not on this team halfway through the season i mean i think they're you know if you take miles turner and buddy healed off this team they're a 25 team problem i would say and so how much do those guys make a difference i don't know i mean i think probably my assumption is going to be that miles isn't going to finish the year on the team but how would you see that yeah i mean i think there was early reporting in the summer and i won't speak for miles on what he's currently thinking it seems to me that like i don't exactly know what the timeline was for when the pacers were in contact with Aiton versus when they had some information that maybe miles wasn't at the very least planning on signing an extension this summer but i can't imagine that the Aiton thing provided him with motivation to um oh hey you just looked for somebody at an upgrade at my own position that really makes me want to stay here long term you know um that seems like it could be somewhat of an awkward situation i mean he's a professional he is entering a contract year so i expect that he'll come back and play hard but in terms of you know committing here when he's never been out of the second round of the playoffs um i know that it's important that he wants to be playing in the postseason he's mentioned that in the past um it just i i don't see any way that the pacers play that out if they don't think he's going to sign an extension they can't just let him walk for nothing um i don't know what his current trade market is it doesn't seem to me that there's a lot of potential locations it seems like the teams that at least that i knew of that had interest or that were rumored to have interest in the past have kind of addressed those issues like minnesota yeah. had been linked to him for a long time they obviously got rudy gobert charlotte drafted mark williams dallas went and got christian wood and signed javel mcgee like those were main players so now you're kind of just looking at the late thing and if the Lakers aren't willing to throw in that second rounder my guess is that the Pacers are more willing to just let Miles come back and try to recoup some of his value um but I'm with you I'm not expecting that the two of them will probably finish 
the season with the Pacers meeting Buddy and Miles. Um, that's just where I land as far as how much will the two of them help them. Um, Buddy, I think, led the team in minutes over the past 26 games of the year. And like that wasn't making a big difference for them in terms of the win column. They lost the last 10 games straight. Um, when I was talking about those games against Memphis and Toronto, they seemed so out of their depth there that I I could not see a situation where just because Miles is playing that those would have been like close competitive games um, against those better teams. So um, I don't know that it would necessarily impact the win loss a lot, but it might impact it to a degree. So like if I'm looking at it, I think kind of the best case for the Pacers is that they're competitive losing and that the two of them, you know, show up and can kind of like what happened with Victor Oladipo two seasons ago. Like, I don't think anybody really thought Victor was going to finish the season with the Pacers either, but he came back and played pretty well for like the first 10 games of the year. And they were able to make that trade very early on, move on. And, you know, Karras couldn't play right away, but they did complete the trade. I think if you're the Pacers, you're hoping that you can find deals for them probably fairly quickly in the season. So like what you're saying doesn't happen. That if if for some reason, the two of them are going to help them get, you know, a few extra wins, that that doesn't occur. Because to me, on the flip side of that, the worst case would kind of be that because they have a little bit softer start to the season compared to how hard their schedule is over the back end, that those two playing, maybe they get off to a better than expected start and they start to buy into the belief of, oh, you know, maybe we can be a playing team and let's push for this instead of, you know, getting what assets they could potentially get for those two guys for, you know, a longer view of a rebuild with Tyrese. Yeah. And there's always the injury component with this group too. Like they are thin exactly. in a, a number of areas. I mean, there is also a thought that, hey, maybe you want to trade Miles before he gets injured again because uh, that may have prevented uh, him from getting traded a year ago um all that said while they do have Halliburton and they are they are going to have some pretty good shooters I wouldn't view Halliburton at least at this point as like a premium initiator and when you consider the four and the five I don't know that I would consider them as having like you know substantially above average spacing maybe a few line up and get there so I don't think they can be above average on offense I mean maybe if everything went incredibly well they could sniff that particularly if Tyrese took a ridiculous step forward but you know I'm thinking they're probably going to be in like the low 20s in offense and that's kind of about where I see them defensively as well particularly when you consider that Miles is probably going to get traded and they just don't have that length uh, on the perimeter both on or off the ball with guys being able to close out run them run guys off the line etc so I'm thinking and you also mentioned they have a hard schedule at the end of the year that can kind of compound the tanking to some degree as well I'm gonna go with 29 wins yeah I was you're actually a little bit more optimistic than I was I was going to say 27 wins yeah I was I was between 28 and 29 uh but yeah 27 so did you kind of see it playing out similar to me in terms of like where they'll be offensively and defensively I don't have really high hopes for the defense improving, especially if they do end up moving miles. I just hope that it looks more competent and I can understand exactly what the mission is on that end of the floor. Offensively, I might be a little bit more optimistic because I I don't have the numbers in front of me, but I do think that they were a top 15 offense after Tyrese came over. Um, I believe in him enough as a playmaker. And I think that I believe in the rest of the pieces enough that, and what Rick Carlisle does and, and what they do schematically that I think that 
they can cobble together a fairly decent offense, especially if they, you know, can play up and down the floor a little bit more and get easy points that way. So I, I feel a little bit better about the offense, but I think that like the ceiling for the defense is going to be, you know, 22nd if I'm being, and that feels optimistic to me. Yeah. I mean, maybe when Turner is on the floor, there's right. like some way that they could get slightly above average. But when you consider the possibility of a trade and injuries and just generally, he's never been a guy to play a ton of minutes and they just have some of these other bigs that they're wanna, gonna want to get a, a look at. You probably feel like it's, it's going to be uh, below average. Let's see here. So after the trade deadline, on offense yeah you're right the pacers were actually 12th on offense after the trade deadline and uh 30. they were last on defense yeah. oh they were last 123.7 defense i'm telling you they got smoked in transition defense they gave up like 144 points per 100 transition plays it was it was not pretty oh man yeah that is that is really rough but i do think you were talking about this before with the transition i think with like being in a real situation having the team together from the right. start of the year rick carlisle is a, is a good coach like i think they're gonna clean that up to some degree i and think that just yeah. yeah i think that just simplifying it to a degree will make a difference and i think that that probably will be an emphasis when you know you have a younger group because another piece yeah. i wrote here you know over the back end of the season like sometimes we talk about two three zone and we just think that you know every team plays two three exactly the same way and like over the last two years the pacers have set their two three zone drastically differently to the point where they were actually switching like not just a matchup zone they were actually switching mid possession from zone to man off of high post catches yeah. so like they did a lot of things like that tinkering around with the defense as the season went on so i think just providing them with a more streamlined simplified roadmap and like even transition wise like if miles is a floor spacer at the top of the key that kind of helps you because he'll be the first guy back at least like versus you know if isaiah jackson's rolling to the basket he's not and he's clearly not the same caliber of rim protector as miles is anyways but like that's a difference of something that they didn't have at the back end of last year i think that you know having a full training camp hopefully they can simplify some of it should make somewhat of a difference but i'm not um super bullish about them improving vastly on that end of the floor yeah all right well this was awesome uh, thank you so much uh, for joining me i really enjoyed talking paces with you and uh, getting into the details about this team and they will be fun to watch uh, at least this year i think a, so yeah. yeah a different kind of pacers season where they do have a, a couple of young guys that you're going to be really excited about seeing uh, uh, on the perimeter in matherin and, and halliburton so at least watching the development uh, of those guys is something that uh, i'll be focused on a lot uh, on this team they're actually one of the more interesting teams to me right at the start of the year uh because of those two guys but uh once again so we can keep up with your stuff at indy cornrows and uh your twitter is my twitter handle is at c2 underscore cooper and yeah i'm at indy cornrows a couple times a week and then we have our podcast there as well all right well i would be happy to return the favor although would would that just cause the site to combust if i showed up on on a local pacers podcast or or can we make peace now that sabonis is no longer on the team oh there's always peace with me i don't have any problem with well, it. people no, can I, have their own and, basketball and, opinions well no me and me and pacers fans i, I should say Oh, I didn't know that there was intense beef between you and oh, Pacer yeah. fans. No, there was this whole thing 
thing where uh so Sabonis when he made his first all-star team I tweeted that I thought he was one of the uh worst all-star selections of the last few years and uh you know I mean I don't think that that many Pacers fans like following me closely but Daenery saw it and he decided like he was gonna fire back at me and you know he if he wants to disagree with me on Sabonis fine like I understand that but then he was you know he started like shitting on my work and stuff and so that was that kind of led to uh a few back and forths with uh Pacers uh Twitter and some of their their broadcast team is uh they rallied the troops against me but i think uh now that he's gone maybe we can uh we can all make up and all that's kind of funny because like i'm i'm probably one of the people who's probably more high on sabonis than most but like pacers twitter's been so divided on those two bigs for so long i'm surprised there was even like enough of a a mob to come after you about him honestly (laughs) (laughs) well i don't know i mean it's uh I, i think probably also the people who are following like uh the pacers announcers on twitter may not be the same ones who are like reading your stuff i mean i think people who are reading your stuff are like not going to get too bent out of shape of, out of one observation or another but i think i think also there is this feeling of like you know he just made this is his dream like how can you be crapping on him like that kind of a thing <laughs> that's uh, true where you know i i mean i get that but i also i'm gonna go ahead and assume that demonis Demonis isn't reading my twitter feed and if he is he probably shouldn't be because that's not actually going to help him as as a player so uh in any event uh if if you would like to have me on and uh you're not going to get canceled for it i would love to do it. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely yes all right well thank you again for this uh, and uh we'll be back here on dunked on prime with more season outlooks very soon talk to y'all then at bet365 we don't do ordinary we believe that every sport should be epic every goal every game every point every play from the moments that are legendary to the ones that fly under the radar whether it's a game-winning goal in the final seconds of overtime or a shot on the goal in the first period. Whatever the sport, whatever the moment. It's never ordinary at Bet365. 21 plus only. Must be present in Virginia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem and wants help, call 1-800-GAMBLER. Terms and conditions apply.